Welcome to End on End. I'm Brian. I'm Jeff. And today we are tackling Discord 7.5, Exclaim 1, The Kids Will Have Their Say by SSD. Yeah, this was uh, this one's not one people usually think of for Discord, right? I was actually surprised to see this on the roster because I I will never think of this record as being a Discord record. This will always be Exclaim number one for me. Uh, but it is a Discord split release. And mm-hmm. I love that we're doing this episode because it gives us a chance to get in our cars and drive up north off 95 and visit Boston, which we probably won't be doing again through the whole history of this podcast. I don't know what's mm-hmm. coming up, but so one episode, actually two episodes, <laughs> but we're going to get that to that in a second um, to discuss oh, Boston hardcore. So I'm really, right. really psyched right. to get into this. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. And, uh, before we do, you know, let's just check in. What, what have you been up to, Jeff, in the last uh, couple of weeks? Last couple of weeks? Well, um, you know, again, just hanging out, doing the stay-at-home thing for the most part. Uh, mm-hmm. But these last couple of weeks have been great because I've really uh, dove back into a lot of Boston Hardcore records that I haven't listened to in a while. Um, mm. You know, I didn't just stop at Kids Will Have Their Say. I was listening to a lot of SSD. I was listening to... Uh, uh, the Jerry's Kids record, uh, the first one, which is one of my favorite of all time, uh, rewatched the All Ages documentary, and got uh, an amazing book in the mail, which which I'll discuss uh, later on uh, when we when we talk to that person. But uh, it's been a good couple of weeks. I've been looking forward to recording this episode for sure, though. How about you? I mean, how how how's your last week or so been? Well, I feel like I'm back at school, man. I I I did I didn't not do any homework but oh you're putting me to shame with the amount you're doing which i'm happy somebody is for sure <laughs> uh i had seen that documentary it's been a while and i've definitely been listening to kids will have their say quite a bit but uh and want you know it's made me really want to pull out dys and from what i understand your favorite boston band jerry's kids a couple other things but yeah um I've been I've been good, very busy, and it's all been good. I've been working, still working in an essential job, so that's happening. Took a trip for my, God knows, fiftieth birthday. Don't know how that happened, but uh, here I am, and took a trip to see my kids in Las Vegas, and that was really cool, really interesting. California is like very very strict, very on top of uh, the whole social distance, masks, tons of uh, precautions and restrictions in place here. Still, like, you know, without much of any let up. Uh, The further we drove away from California, however, more and more we saw tons of people without masks. In Vegas, more people than not without masks. A lot of restaurants were open. one one thing that was awesome was I was able to go into a record store like god I never knew how much I missed just that little pleasure bought a cool Funkadelic live record for my birthday but uh yeah you know it, it was great being able to go on a trip and spend uh that 
you know, big number birthday with people I care about and doing some things I care about. And that's kind of what the podcast, this whole podcast is about for me as well, kind of celebrating that kind of thread of inspiration, what's, you know, what's really at the core of being alive and being a conscious, connected, hopefully thoughtful human being. So that's my long-winded answer. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's great. I'm glad you, you know, you got on the road and did some things and, you know, just a simple task of going into an Italian bakery this weekend. It was like the first time I stepped in a store mm. in like a month. And just the simple act of doing that felt like some degree of returning to normal. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's true. Yeah. So, um, I think at the outset, I, first of all, I wanted to remind everybody that we have a, an ongoing Spotify playlist mixtape we're making. So if you are on Spotify, just search for end on end podcast. And I think you'll find the podcast, but you should also find a playlist that we add to. So give that a follow. And when this airs Monday, there'll be a couple of extra songs. Actually, there will not be a couple of extra <laughs> songs. And and this actually brings me maybe to the first point of the night. And that is the fact that we're doing this is really timely because kids will have their say, get it away. Those two albums have been impossible to find for so long. And Alba Real, I guess, has had such a tight grip on the SSD catalog, and it seems that that grip might finally be loosened mm -hmm. because just in the last week or two, Get It Away popped up on Spotify, and it sounds amazing. I mean, it sounds absolutely incredible. And I think that the kids will have their say is going to get that treatment as well, at least I'm hoping. I know. Uh, I'm not sure about how we rock or, or break it up. If those are going to make I I would love to see that happen. Mm -hmm. But kids will have their say desperately needs that. Because, you know, it's so strange, you know, if you think about it, before we really get into the record, kids will have their say is considered this, you know, this classic, iconic hardcore record. But there was only a thousand of them ever pressed. So there's only a thousand actual, officially released versions of mm -hmm. this record out there, mm -hmm. which means that the vast majority of people that have ever heard this record either got it through some third-generation dub of it, or like I have, a bootleg of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have, I have a CD that's got Kids, Get It Away, and How We Rock on one CD, and it's so clearly just mastered right off the vinyl. I mean, you could literally hear the needle drop onto the record <laughs> as you put the CD in. So to finally have like these kind of pure, pristine versions of these records... Like it's something I'm very excited about, and it's just a total coincidence that we happen to be doing this episode only a couple of weeks before you know get it away finally like kind of hit the airwaves in a in a real way. Yeah, well, and definitely, I I cannot wait to to hear you know the owl approved uh, mastering of get it away and kids will either say on these on these sites. I I actually looked up get it away. You know, within the last couple of days on Spotify, and uh, for I don't know whatever reason I couldn't find it. How did you uh, find it? Cause I I put in SSD. I put in Get It Away. No, I think you have to put in SSD Control. Ah, that would be it. Okay. So yeah, SS SSD Control was, you know, the name of the band through the first two records, mm -hmm. um, and then they consciously shortened it to SSD for the second two. 
uh, you know, which are very different than the first two records. Oh, obviously. So. Obviously. Yeah. yeah, I mean, from society system decontrol to, you know, SSD control to SSD. <laughs> yeah. Probably uh, some ways of trying to replicate their heroes ACDC as far as the short. <laughs> Could be. Well, one one recurring theme in a lot of the interviews is that ACDC was certainly a huge influence um, on Al. Mm -hmm. I mean, the back cover of How We Rock uh, looks a lot like the back cover of For Those About to Rock, We Salute You. Even the uh, the font is a bit similar. So clearly ACDC being, you know, a, a very big influence on the band. Sure. Yep. As with... <laughs> We're 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 kind of, we're way ahead of uh, kids right now, but yeah, as with the front cover of How We Rock, look just like a uh, Judas Priest album cover too. Point of, I think point of entry or point of no return. Yeah, point of entry. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so but. I think we should I think we should start by kind of talking about Boston in general. The, yeah, the Boston scene and and yeah. sort of you know, linking it up to our primary focus of DC, because I think there's a lot to say about those two scenes and how they relate to each other and how they're a little bit different. I mean, Oh yeah. You know, very different in some ways for, for me, like the early hardcore of the early eighties, you know, there was only so many real scenes. And to me, a scene is more than just about having a couple of good bands. To me, a scene involves, you know, an entire network um, of, you know, show promoters and people who do fanzines and photographers and, and videographers and things like that. And there were great hardcore bands all across the country. But, but for me, I think the primary early scenes were like Los Angeles and Orange County, California, San Francisco, D.C., New York, Chicago, Detroit, Boston, and... I'll give a special shout out uh, for basically the state of Texas. And mm -hmm. that's not to yeah, say, definitely. Yeah, and that's not to say there weren't great other bands. I mean, Seven Seconds were from Reno, Nevada. Uh, the Zero Boys, one of my favorite bands, were from Indianapolis. NOTA mm -hmm. were from Oklahoma. You know, but those cities just didn't have the same network. And Boston had this incredible network just like D.C. did. And and the Boston mm -hmm. scene really started, I think, a little bit after Washington, D.C. I think they were definitely influenced by, you know, Discord Records, just the idea that you can sort of do things yourself and do your own shows. We could definitely talk about how Straight Edge influenced Boston greatly. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, there wouldn't be a Boston scene without Straight Edge. There wouldn't be. And it's funny because, you know, Ian wrote the song Straight Edge as sort of a a personal reflection, you know, personal ideology. Mm -hmm. Whereas the guys in Boston sort of turned that into a lot more than that, you know, when they turned a it manifesto. into, yeah, they turned into Boston crew. And that was one of the sort of the running themes of the things I was talking about. And some of the interviews I did this week, which we'll discuss in a little bit is, is definitely this idea of sort of a crew, you know, a crew mentality, a, a certain, a certain sense of, of togetherness. Yeah. That that and that's that's something I was gonna talk about in a little bit, but that that's this is a great place to to start actually, and yeah, the Wolf Pack, the crew, all that, uh, all very identified with Boston and that kind of tribal mentality, the, the brotherhood, etc. You know, it's 
that was like stitch in, stitched into that scene, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I guess maybe some of it comes from, you know, and, and this is all just very generally speaking, but I think it is backed up by some of the things in the documentary and some of the conversations that, you know, I had that Boston was just as a city, a little more hard nosed and blue collar and working class mm -hmm. than Washington, D.C. You know, Washington, D.C., probably a little more culture growing up in the household. You know, a little. Sure. I don't think they would deny that. Yeah, really. a little more. You know, artistic, probably. You know, families that were a little more upper middle class, whereas mm -hmm. you know Boston, yeah, like I said, was a little, a little tougher town, a little rougher, around the edges. You know, I think of Boston as just this working class kind of Irish city, and you could see how maybe they could take something and sort of make it a little bit more militant, make it a little bit more hard nosed, but in doing so turned it into something that was original for that city and created something for that city. You know, that's just an aside. It's really a thing about hardcore is that if your ear is very in tune to that music, that you could almost put the needle on a record, on an early hardcore record, and discern where in the country that band came from. Yeah, I had that conversation with our guest Tyler, who was on uh, the last Minor Thread episode, and it was interesting because he kind of argued the point that there isn't really a sound to each uh, area, but there's definitely an identity and, a, as you said, a, a recognizable character to each each town's music, especially each town's region, especially back then. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm going to, I guess, you know, wind this conversation into beginning to talk about SSD because, and this is something that my conversation with Dave Smalley touches upon, and that is, you know, with Washington, D.C., there were certain things to coalesce around in the early days. Obviously, you had Discord Records, and you had the Teen Idols, and you had Ian MacKay as entities that the scene began to coalesce and take root around. And in Boston... You know, you had SSD, you had Alboreal, you had Exclaim Records as something to as something to coalesce around. So SSD control is really ground zero for Boston hardcore. For Boston hardcore, definitely. I mean there's definitely some great punk, some great post punk that came out of Boston pre SSD. But absolutely Boston hardcore starts with SSD. Absolutely. Yeah, so Jeff, uh, you know, what, what's your personal uh, origin story with Boston Hardcore? What was your entry point, all that sort of thing? Well, my entry point was really through DYS. And this is to say that, you know, Boston has such a rich history of music and punk rock. I mean, I really could say, like, Lemonheads, Hate Your Friends was really mm -hmm. the first sort of Boston punk record I ever got and loved. And to this day, I mean, I just absolutely love that record uh but mm -hmm. as but you know obviously they came a little bit after not quite the bands that we're talking about here sure so being a dave smalley fan from being a fan of uh, the all records that he was on and and the dag nasty record led me to buy the uh the fire and ice cd the dys fire and ice cd which has wow, so you so you went almost 
like directly backwards. Yeah, when incrementally. It came, with, mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I mean, it was it was really my fandom of Dave Smalley um, that led me to the DYS that DYS CD. I think a local store had the CD for pretty cheap, and I bought it. And that album has Brotherhood has both albums on it. It's got Brotherhood and the self titled album on it, and I just loved it. I I, I love that record. And then when I went to college, uh, my college roommate, who I'll probably reference a lot during the course because so much of my formative years were kind of made up in our collective record collections. Hmm. But he had a copy of Jerry's Kids, Is This My World? And he said, you know, well, if you've never heard this record, you've got to hear this record. And especially having, you know, played a little bit of drums and he was a drummer. And we played Is This My World nonstop. There was a period of time we definitely played that record every single day. And we would we would air drum to it, and we would just laugh because the the drumming on that record is so ridiculous. But it's also that album is also filled with hooks all over the place, and it slows down in just the right parts. I mean, that album is so well paced. Um, and eventually, that kind of led me to the FUs and Gangrene, and really, I have to admit that SSD Control actually came a little bit later. It came a little bit later, and I think that that may have simply been a function of when you don't have when you're when you're growing up listening to music in an era that's before the internet and you can't just listen to anything you want at the touch of a button mm -hmm. you have to somehow find a physical copy of that record or you have to find someone who had a tape of it yeah so it was quite a while before i actually even ever heard kids will have their say you know it was a record that you heard of but it's not necessarily a record you heard because you simply had no access to it. So SSD control came a little bit later with kids and get it away. And I was kind of always put Howie rock and break it up at a distance because, you know, you kind of heard that those records weren't as good, but eventually I did hear Howie rock and I kind of like it. And honestly, to this day, I don't think I've listened to break it up more than once. <laughs> so, but someday, you know what I, I want to, I, I know how people feel about that record. I know how the people in the band, feel about that record it kind of leads you to not really want to listen to that record but um, I think I didn't really hear SSD control until that power comp came out on Tang in the early 90s which kind of oh, yeah. was, a, was a, a collection of a collection of everything sort of but not a fully formed you know the fully formed artistic statement that these records are individually so um, what about you what, what, what brought you to Boston or to Boston <laughs> Well, for me, God, what would be the very first thing I heard? I think that This Is Boston, Not L.A. was the first thing I heard from Boston. And I got it, had to be like around 84. And it was great. It was great to be able to hear this whole, you know, kind of probably how most people outside of D.C. heard Flex Your Head to hear this sampler of all these different styles, but that are as we said, recognizable, you know, have this same kind of Boston toughness, humor, and like take no shit type of attitude to it. I really dug the freeze. Um, the first things that jumped out of me were the freeze, gangrene, I'm trying to think what else, Jerry's Kids definitely. Then I did get uh, SSD and I got uh, Get It Away was the first thing I heard and I was floored like it was one of my favorite records for years on end I mean still is but I don't I don't play it as often as I used to but 
you know, being in the mid eighties, skateboarding, going to show, you know, ah, it was just so much energy, so like aggressive and just full on. I loved it. And the message, you know, is so un unapologetically like, yeah, like you said, militant uh, is a good word. But, you know, no compromise, you know, there's something appealing, especially when you're young to people that have so much conviction. Uh, so that was, you know, it was huge to me. Get it away, you know, groundbreaking record, in, you know, my development. Uh, I didn't hear uh, kids will have their say till, you know, at least a year or two later. And honestly, it was kind of the way of, of hearing later Discord releases than hearing the early ones. I didn't give it as much of a chance because it didn't have the power and uh, precision of get it away. But, you know, I did, you know, there's things I, there's definitely things that's, that I did like from it. And I'd heard a live, I had a couple of live tapes of uh, SSD from around that time. And I listened to those honestly more than kids will have their say. You know, I bought a couple gangrene, uh, seven inches, uh, uh, I don't know you know boston it was a little it you definitely got this sense of toughness from from any of their music you know and and here's these warrior looking guys you know uh you've got al you've got Slapshot, you've got uh all these people choke you know there, there's all these tough motherfuckers you know it's a whole different thing it, it to me boston was a a slightly more nuanced version of new york hardcore new york like was just balls out and like testosterone laden and like in all the best and worst ways to me whereas boston had a little bit more uh going on in the lyric department not quite as like uh, muscle-headed but uh yeah that that was my impression of Boston stuff. I definitely had a lot of Boston music in my collection, but yeah, there you know, it's it's interesting like you said, there's some definite themes that happen a lot, you know, within Boston music and and within these interviews you hear a lot about fighting. I never went to shows where there were riots or where there were like massive bloody battles and it seemed, you know, relatively common there, so it was kind of a mythic mythic uh, wild west town in my my mind so a little a little ssd history here uh ssd was well formed by alboreal guitarist alboreal uh vocalist david spring who we all know as as springer another great <laughs> character of the boston scene you know you mentioned a few uh bassist jamie schiappa and drummer chris foley uh they formed in 1981 and they made a few early recordings, including the How Much Art demo. They started playing that summer at Gallery East. And they recorded the Kids Will Have Their Say record uh, December 1981 through about May of 82 at two different studios, um, Active Sound and Radio Beat. I think Active Sound might have been uh, Mike Bastarash's studio and Radio Beat was Lou Giordano's studio. Um, I can't really tell on the record which songs were recorded where, to be honest, but uh, that was recorded at those, I don't know if it was two sessions or just over the course of time. 
That record was released in 1982 on Al's Exclaim label, Exclaim number one, but we also know that Ian Mackay slapped the Discord logo on the back of that record. I know you'll be getting into that a little bit later, a little bit more on that. Exclaim, you know, was not the label that Discord was. They put out a few records in the early 80s, uh, BFUs, DYS, Jerry's Kids, and then he used that Exclaim label later in the 90s for his band Gage. And after Kids Will Have Their Say, they added Francois Levesque. I'm sure I just butchered that last (laughs) name, so I apologize. But they added Francois as an additional guitarist for the next record, uh, Get It Away which was, you know, similar musically to Kids Will Have Their Say. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about Get It Away later and how we feel about it. They then shortened their name to SSD, and they released two more records, How We Rock in 84, which came out on Modern Method Records, which was an offshoot of Newberry Comics. Their final show was in April 85 at Suffolk University in Boston, and they released a posthumous record, The Much Maligned, Uh, break it up in 1985 on Homestead. None of these records were ever reissued, um, but Tang released uh, the Power Compilation in 1991. They did tour a bit. They played in, obviously they played a ton of shows in Boston, but they did make it to D.C. and New York, Detroit, Montreal, Philadelphia, and they did drive across country for a swing up California. Uh, they played L.A., San Francisco, Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara. After they broke up, um, Al Barreal played bass in a band called Gage. I mentioned earlier in the late 90s, Francois played guitar in that band. Jamie Schiappa played in Slapshot in the early 90s and played on what is my personal favorite Slapshot record. I know a lot of people love Back on the Map and things like that, but, but my personal favorite Slapshot record is Sudden Death Overtime, and he plays bass on that. Chris Foley, I think, went on to have quite a music career up to this day. I think both as a drummer and a guitarist. Springer moved to Chicago, started acting. He played in some bands, uh, Razor Kane and Die Blitzkinder. And the last I saw of him, he had he had a band, Springer Sonic Droogs, which the initials of that are SSD. And there's some YouTube videos from January of last year when they did a big benefit for Chris Doherty from Grand Gang Green at the Paradise. And I found some videos of them doing uh, Boiling Point, Nothing Done, and Glue. And actually, I have to say, actually sounding pretty good. And about 10 years ago, I was on a bus that went from New York City up to Boston for the Gallery East reunion show, which was a huge show. It had DYS playing for the first time since, you know, 1985. Jerry's Kids played, the FU's played, it was just this great show, and the opening band on that show was Refuse Resist, and the singer in that band is my friend Sean, who actually now lives on Long Island, and doesn't just live on Long Island, but if I stepped out my door and started walking to his house, I would get there in five minutes, but when he was in the band, uh, when he was in, back in Boston ten years ago, opening the show, uh, Springer came up, and they did Boiling Point. So that was that was pretty cool to see. It's the one and only time I've ever seen Spring Alive, or actually probably seen any band even do an SSD song live. So that's a little bit of history. Um, you have anything to add to that? 
Not really. You know, Al's been all over Facebook talking a lot about history lately. <clears throat> he even put a, as I sent you, the uh, some recording cost uh, receipts for the uh, for the sessions for this kids will kids will have their say record. He also someone mentioned Springa recently, and it sounded like Al, you know, had no idea where he was. You know, no contact. Was kind of curious himself in his own kind of uh, love him and hate him kind of way. So, you know, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was that was definitely interesting. So, um, well, I got to, I know you got to speak to a couple of people who have very deep attachments. I also got to speak to a few people this week about this, about this record and about Boston in general. Um, I corresponded first to Drew Stone, and for those who don't know Drew Stone, you should know Drew Stone. He, he's a New York guy originally, but he went to school in Boston. I think he studied acting, but that may have been where his directing and film career got started. Uh, I'm not sure, 100% sure about that, but Drew has made a whole bunch of documentaries, and most notably for this conversation... He made the All Ages documentary, which came out in 2012, which I certainly, you know, anyone interested in Boston Hardcore should absolutely watch this documentary. He's got interviews with, he's got interviews with everybody from the scene, lots of great old footage. He also does um, a YouTube show. I, I don't know if I would call it a podcast because he actually broadcasts live. You should go to Drew's YouTube channel, which is Stone Films NYC. And he does this show called New York Hardcore Chronicles. And at the beginning of this month, beginning of May, he put out episode 14, which was the old school Boston Hardcore show. And it's about an hour and a half. I think it's actually longer than his documentary. But he's on there and he's got Jamie Schiappa. And he's got uh, Jack Kelly, or Choke. And they're just talking old Boston Hardcore. And, you know, I don't want to spoil or ape anything from either the documentary or that New York Hardcore Chronicles episode. So definitely go and watch those things, seek them out. Uh, the one interesting little tidbit I got out of the New York Hardcore Chronicles was that their original plan to press Kids Who Have Their Say, their original plan was to do 2,000 of them, not 1,000. So they actually made 2,000 sleeves but they only actually pressed a thousand records. So there's a whole bunch of these sleeves with no records. And Jamie had a couple of them. I think like the whole band signed a whole bunch of them. But I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. But Drew gave me, you know, Drew was right there. He was he was there when, when hardcore hit in the early 80s. So he gave me a little quote. He told me um, in August of 1981, I went to my first hardcore show. SSD Control played at a place called Media Workshop. There were 20 kids there. Soon after, I fell in with the band and became part of the original Boston crew. Soon after, Kids Will Have Their Say was released. It was our voice. It was incredible. Being thanked on the record was a badge of honor. Lessons I learned in those vibrant and exciting times I still carry with me to this day. And I asked him to give me his top three favorite Boston Hardcore Records, and he gave me the first two SSD records, Get It Away and Kids, and Jerry's Kids, Is This My World? So thanks to Drew for 
all that you do. Thank you for that amazing documentary and some other documentaries, you know, he's done. And the New York Hardcore Chronicles show, which, you know, is very New York City centric. But this one particular episode is great for anyone interested in in Boston Hardcore. I also uh, reached out to Al Quint, who I've known personally for 20 something years. Uh, he did a zine that I grew up reading called Suburban Voice. It was originally called Suburban Punk, but most people probably know it as Suburban Voice, and Al is still very active. He does um, a podcast called Sonic Overload, where he will introduce you to a ton of bands that you've never heard of before. Still goes to basement shows. I mean, Al, if ever there was a lifer, Al Quint is it. So he was kind enough to also give me a quote. So this is from Al. I didn't get to see SSD Control for the first time until June of 82, when they opened for Minor Threat at the Gallery East. It was my first time there, and made me feel like I'd stumbled onto something incredible. I remember they had Minor Threat play second, because they were afraid the show would get shut down. After their kick-ass set, SSD brought out such... SSD brought out just as furious a response. Bodies flying everywhere, and Springer darting back and forth across the stage like a madman. It hooked me immediately. Believe it or not, I only caught SSD a handful of times. One of the most memorable was at the Channel in Boston. I seem to recall a dead pig's head being kicked around the floor. That upped the ante from the time I saw the freeze throw a dead pigeon around. I wasn't that into their hard rock direction and gave their How We Rock album a pretty thorough slagging. One day I got a phone call from a woman who proceeded to argue with me for 20 or so minutes about the merits of said record. I think she did convince me it didn't sound that much like ACDC. But we still ended up agreeing to disagree. I've always had my suspicions about who it was. She didn't give me her name, and I don't have her caller ID. But the person I thought it was categorically denies it, so I'll take her at her word. He gave me his top three. And his three favorites was Jerry's Kids, Is This My World? FU's My America, and SSD Kids Will Have Their Say. You know, I just, I just want to say a quick thing about like these sort of top threes. Uh, one of the hardcore Facebook groups that I'm on, the uh, No Echo Hardcore Discussion Group, I threw this out there that we were doing this and was just curious to know what people's, you know, favorite Boston hardcore records were. And you saw the same, you know, you saw the same kind of records over and over again. But when it came to SSD, I sort of noticed something kind of interesting. People who were in bands tend to pick Get It Away. And people who are not necessarily in bands, but just fans of hardcore who are not from Boston, also seem to pick Get It Away. But the kids who are from Boston, all pick kids will have their say. So, I think by, that that's... By kids, you mean younger younger kids now? Or? Well, I just mean, not younger kids now, I mean people who were kids or grew up in Boston. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, but not necessarily... People who were in bands. Mm. But just people in the scene who grew up in Boston. You asked them that question, and they almost to a man say, kids will have their say. But the rest of the world says, get it away. Right. So I think that that's a very, I think that really shows you just how important and ingrained kids will have their say was to that specific scene. Especially if you live through it at the time. Yeah. As opposed to sort of, if you're not from Boston and kind of able to sort of look at the catalog all at once, and and those people kind of tend to pick, get it away. 
But people who were in bands, fellow musicians, seemed to also pick Get It Away. So mm-hmm. I don't know. But I just thought that was kind of a, kind of an interesting thing. Sure. What's your uh, top three? You want to do this now? Okay, well, <laughs> before I'm going to tell you my top three, an interesting thing has been going around the internet right now, and that is uh, Pusshead has a famous list of his top 100 hardcore records. And Felix Havoc recently, I think he put out, I'm not sure what he did. I think he, he curated a Spotify playlist or a YouTube playlist. I'm, I'm not sure what it was. But he picked one song from all 100 records from this Pusshead Top 100. Uh-huh. But reading the... I went down the list and Pusshead, who you know did the cover for Get It Away, he has, out of that Top 100, seven of those records are old Boston Hardcore records. So it's pretty clear that Pusset had a had a huge love for Boston hardcore records. So before I give you my list, I'm going to give you the seven records that were on his list. So number 72, he had the Deep Wound 7-inch. Hmm. Number 45 was the Negative Effects LP. And Negative Effects, of course, was Choke's band before Slapshot. Right. Uh, then you had the Last Rites he was in Last Rites in between. but So 45 was that negative effects LP. Number 24 was the classic, the This Is Boston, Not L.A. comp. Number 19 was F.U.'s Kill for Christ. Number 13 was D.Y.S. Brotherhood. Number 9 was Jerry's Kids, Is This My World? And number 2 was SSD, Get It Away. So not on this list is Kids Will Have Their Say. Mm. But he also picked Get It Away. As far as my my personal favorites, I would say that number three is sort of a cheat, but I would put the Siege Drop Dead demo. (laughs) It's not technically an LP, but uh, I would put there. I think that if I wasn't allowed to put Siege on there, I'd probably put Gangrene Another Wasted Night. Mm. Number two is DYS Brotherhood. Number one would be Jerry's Kids is This My World, which is just which just flattens me every single time I hear it. So uh, what about you? What's uh, what do you have to add to that? What are your picks? Gosh, I don't know if I could uh, put them in order. I'll say as well that, you know, I always liked Jerry's Kids when I heard them, but I never owned that LP. But hearing you talk about them so much this last week has definitely made me want to dive deep into that that record. Um, I would say definitely my top three would be, uh, this is Boston, not LA. It is much because of what it meant to me when I heard it. Um, I would put DYS Brotherhood and yeah, I think in this order. And then number one would, would be, uh, SSD, get it away. That record is just ferocious. You know, I love it so much. Yeah, get it away as a winner. But we are here to specifically talk about the kids who have their say. Over the course of this show, you are hearing clips from some interviews that I conducted uh, with uh, Dave Smalley, Jonathan Anastas, and Mike Gitter. And although we're only you're only hearing kind of you know two three minute clips in this episode, you know when I spoke to these guys, I, I thought I was going to get ten minutes of their time, and each one of them. You know, I I asked them before we even started, you know, how much, you know, how much time do you have right now? And every single one of them said, eh, as much time as you want. So I kind of went for it. So 
the interviews, all three of them were such great interviews and so passionate about this time in their lives and have such great stories and reflections that we couldn't resist doing a bonus supplemental episode later this week that's going to have all three of those interviews that I did in full. And and I just want to say they're all they're they're all great. I think if you're interested in, you know, that old Boston hardcore, I think you'll find something on each of them. I just want to say specifically for people who really love DYS, the back half of the Jonathan Anastas interview is going to be crucial listening for you because he and I walk through like the entire history of DYS from their origins through brotherhood, through the self-titled record, right through to their reunion in 2010 to the songs they made in the early 2010s, right through to the present day. So I think it's probably one of the most comprehensive sort of DYS interviews probably that's been out there recently or done or maybe ever. So I think people are really going to want to listen to that episode later in the week. So just a little a little extra content this week. Yeah, definitely. And done really uh, interesting, important things with their lives at the time and since. So it's it's they're all really good interviews to check out, I'm sure. And and they're all still doing it. who probably needs no introduction to anyone listening to this podcast. He was and is the singer in DUIS and Down by Law and Don't Sleep and Dave Smalley and the Bandoleros and, of course, has been in All and Dag Nasty and probably a bunch of other bands. Um, One of the great voices in punk rock. This is Dave. So for Boston, our foundation was Al Burrill and Jamie Sharapa and uh, Springer and, and Chris Foley. And, um, and later it was Francois that joined as well. But that band and particularly Al was our foundation. The house was built on that foundation. Uh, without them, there may have been a Boston scene, but it wouldn't have been the same Boston scene. And the thing about Al for those who've seen pictures of him, he's a very charismatic and, and impressive uh, physically guy, right? It was the kind of guy that you, 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 could, you could follow this guy. He was a, he was a leader. It, he didn't try to be a leader. He didn't say, I'm the leader. It was just one of those things where I think a lot of times the great leaders just attract people to them. Al had that, that magnetism where you just, you're like, yeah, this is, this is my guy. One of the things that I, that I really love about that album, if you go through, I'm not sure of the total length, but I know that a lot of those songs are under a minute. Uh, you know, like Boiling Point and, um, you know, Wasted Youth. And um, uh, I'm trying to think of whatever. There was Screw. Um, and, and then some of them were a whopping minute, minute and a half. Police Beat, I think, was a little longer, if memory serves. And, um, and of course, uh, How Much Art, right, was like this three minute or something epic at that point. That was like a ballad. Um, but the joy of that song, of course, was that it was a total mock-up of all of the droning art stuff or, or even a traditional power rock ballads. It was just a, it was the anti-art, uh, anti, 
ballad type thing, which I really loved about it. It was very tongue in cheek and very brilliantly done. But uh, so I think it was a brilliant record in its way. And it captured kind of like the first first DYS album, Brotherhood, you know, which is also incredibly short. I think that that the kids will have their say captured honestly a bunch of rage on vinyl a bunch of questions about who we are where are we our society has problems our city has problems the you know the authorities the you know who are, are we as kids growing up and trying to and becoming you know young men and and all these things like there's all this sort of angst that was captured in almost every track it was produced by mr b and and lou giordano and um the production that they did was was perfect for that album for that time it's kind of like people who say that Spot should have produced the Black Flag things differently. I've always said, no, Spot was great. He captured the mood of the band um, for those early Black Flag and other production things that he did. And I would say the same thing for uh, for the production. The production was perfect. Um, and the fact, I don't know how many songs were on that. Let me look it up here. But uh, probably you know, a lot of songs for such a short album. Uh, yeah, it was, it captured, it captured Rage. The great thing about some artistic collaborations sometimes is the tension, right? So there's all kinds of, uh, at the highest levels of, of rock and roll success, quote unquote, and I use that with quotes, but at the highest levels of that stuff is, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are apparently like, you know, they've been like fire and ice since the beginning of the band. And, you know, to, to a lesser degree, Brian and I and Dag Nasty had that. And then, um, although Brian and I were, were close friends for a long time too, but but anyways, uh, but certainly Alan Springer, you know, you got one guy who's just absolutely boots, literally combat boots on the ground, leather jacket, tough as nails, uh, solemn, serious guy, funny guy. Al has funniness to him too. People who don't know him don't know that, but he is a rock, right? Like he is an anchor of of serious music you know, what are we doing and why are we doing it kind of thing. On the other hand, the flip side of that coin, you've got Springer, who is anarchy on on two legs and his combat boots and the style, you know, he would always be the one to have all the buttons and all the flair, as they put it. You know, it was, it was a great match, those two guys. So Springer was anarchy, but his vocal delivery for those songs, untouchable. Nobody else could have done what he did at that time in that way. Again, it was a perfect melding. And you get those albums in, in rock history where it had to be those four or five or two or whatever it is. You have to have those people in the room at the same time at that time. And if you put even those same people in the room at a different time, two years later, it wouldn't have been the same. Well, I think that's kind of what you get when you get SSD in their first album, first two albums, because of course, um, Get It Away is untouchable as well. But I'd say those people in that room at that time was a perfect juxtaposition of one fist versus one lightning bolt. And, and the way those two combined was, was perfection.
Jeff, you ready to drop the needle on this thing? I am ready to drop the needle. All right, let's do it. All right, so Brian, give me uh, you know your your relationship with this record, what you think of it, do you like it? You know, get us get us going with this conversation. All right, well, so I heard "Get It Away" much much earlier than kids will have their say, and just fell in love with that. Um, so then I went backwards and got "Kids Will Have Their Say" at some point, and. You know, it was, as with a lot of the Discord releases, like the early Discord going backwards, it it didn't grab me right away because I was just so in love with, you know, the later stuff, Get It Away. Um, how Much Art, Boiling Point, certain songs like really jumped out at me. But I, I tended to listen to uh, some live live uh, cassettes that, that I'd gotten from people you know, quite a bit more than this actual record is iconic and as uh, historic as it is. You know, so that's my personal history, like, you know, growing up with this and, and going back to it. There, there's there's things that I wish I would have paid more attention to at the time. But, you know, we'll get into that. How about you? Yeah, well, this this was not I you know, I did get into a lot of the Boston hardcore records fairly early on. Um I was really into like skateboarding culture. I mean, not not yeah. so much skateboarding itself because I have two left feet. But you know, I had my subscription to Thrasher magazine, and so much of my early records was based on the the Puss Zone column. And he would talk about bands like Gang Green a lot. So that that got me into that. My my love for Dave Smalley made me curious to check out DYS. So they had that DYS CD that had both albums on it. Uh, FU's Kill for Christ in My America. And and the thing about the SSD records, unlike all those other records, is that it, it was just so unavailable. You know, in the 90s, you couldn't just hop on your computer, go to YouTube and listen to whatever you wanted or find some, you know, blog to download something. I mean, it's it's just amazing to me that this record, where they only pressed a thousand of them, became such this became this iconic record when so few people could really actually hear the real thing so the only way to hear this record back then was to either know one of those thousand people who owned the record which i didn't or a bootleg or some third generation copy of it but eventually mm -hmm. i did buy a cd a bootleg cd that I think a lot of people I know have this, and this is how they first heard it. It's a bootleg CD that has the first three albums on it. And it's clearly ripped right from the vinyl. I mean, you put it on and you could hear, you can literally hear the needle drop on the CD. So mm -hmm. it's it's a terrible, you know, it's it's not very well done. And, and I think we we mentioned earlier that it's really timely we're doing this because it seems like Al is finally going to you know, remaster and get these records out, at least the first two, you know, up on Spotify yeah. and, you know, get it away, which which was just released a few weeks ago, just sounds completely fantastic. And I would love to hear this record sound this way. But Kids Will Have Their Say, you know, came a little bit later for me. And, you know, as far as, as far as how I think about it, you know, I think that there are certain records that, I guess probably all records, but I think such a groundbreaking album like this you know, this album and this band was the first hardcore band that 
those Boston kids, that original Boston crew, coalesced around. So I could understand that if you were there when this was coming out, you look at this record now as, you know, something larger than life, something something holy. I think, you know, yeah. I have a little bit more of a an objective opinion on it because I wasn't there. You know, I'm reflecting. I didn't hear SSD until they were long broken up, you know, and had their all their records out. And so Get It Away was the album that I always gravitated to because that album is so full of of hooks and great songwriting. I mean, it's it's hardcore. It's pure hardcore, but it's it's crafted so much better in my opinion than the songs that are on this album. You know, this album is is more raw. The song craft is much simpler. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of the songs just feel like, you know, it's two or three chords put together and they're meant to they're meant to invoke a feeling. You know, they're in, they're meant to invoke you know, that sense of rage. I think Dave Smalley mentioned that in our, in our little video clip. Uh, so th- overall, yeah. how I feel is is that, honestly, I, I probably don't love this record as much as the people who are from Boston hearing it in real time. I, I, I think that Get It Away, I hate to say it, I think Get It Away blows this album away. I think it's a whole other level of songcraft. Oh, it but does. But this album, you know, definitely has... It's moments, and there are things about this album that I really like a lot. So I'll throw it back to you. I mean, you know, you want to get into some specific songs that caught your ears or specific things you really love about this album? Or don't like about this album? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a couple of both for sure. First, though, uh, you know, what what you had to say kind of sparked a couple couple thoughts for me as well, like, you know, you mentioned skateboarding, and uh, I definitely, for years and years, and unfortunately not now, but, you know, skateboarding was, like, intimately woven in with hardcore for me. It's just such a high-intensity, like, full-release type of thing, and and hardcore was, of course, the best soundtrack for that. And what has more energy than something like Get It Away? I mean, goddamn. But, uh... Yeah, and, and about the record's availability, yeah, that's a that's a really good point as well. It was still kind of around <clears throat> when I was growing up, but it was also becoming, you know, the price was slowly rising because it was not so readily available. I remember being kind of put off by like a twenty or thirty dollar price tag at one point, <laughs> and which now would be such a deal because. Uh, I remember being in Las Vegas at this one good record store about, geez, five or six years ago and seeing it on the counter and being like, oh, wow, kids will have their say. And I think they had their copy for 400 at that point. And I was like, what the fuck? It, you know, it, I, you know, it, no fault of SS, SSD, but, you know, it just pissed me off when I'd see such huge price tags for records and, it would, it would cause me probably to to uh, to judge the music a little harsher than I would for you know if it was a five dollar record, and that's just a purely psychological thing for me. But uh, you know that that that's something that came to mind. Whereas I guess I don't know if Get It Away was you know a record that 
the, I don't know how much actually Get It Away goes for. Probably not much less, but that record is so, so good. As far as uh, the actual tracks, I think, you know, we both have kind of mentioned that Boiling Point is just, you know, just pops this thing off uh, with just the perfect, perfect, perfect uh, beginning and introduction to, to the band, to the to the aesthetic, to the mission of the band. It, it's so good. Um, great song. Uh, it it perfectly captures vis viscerally the uh, the lyrics and all that. Um, both the that song and the last song, I think you know, I think they sequenced. Actually, they sequenced a lot of the record really well. If if I think back, because that being first, the end being last, and not just because it's called the end, but because it it's so short and kind of ends things on this kind of. Uh, taking a breath almost type of you know surveying the carnage type of feel and then uh, having how much art right in the middle of all that just seems really good you know that that's you know that's that, that's where I'll start with that and oh one last thing is that uh, how you'd mentioned the songwriting definitely the uh, music on uh, kids is definitely like kindergarten as opposed to the like really really well done you know ferocious yet well written songs on get it away it, it almost seems like a lot of the songs on not all of them but a lot of the songs on kids will have their say you know they are it's like they're like hey we better just throw some chords together so that we can get all this energy out so that we can put the lyrics to this stuff and that's not necessarily a diss. I mean, they're young and learning their instruments and just wanting to get this stuff out there. That's what punk's about. But yeah, well, you know, what's your take on the on the songs, Jeff? So the record opens up with a one-two punch, uh, Boiling Point and Fight Them. And Boiling Point to me is the introduction to all of this. You know, you, you have a slow part, some rolling drums, and right into the thrash. And to me... This song is where the whole concept of this record, you know, that we'll, we'll discuss, because to me, this record is a concept record. You know, the album cover, the pent-up energy, this, this building force that is coming from the new kids who are now onto the scene and about to take the underground scene over. The lyrics, the music, it all sounds like a boiling pot of water about to boil over. So this is this song is a perfect encapsulation of all of that. It's it's such a strong song. Springer's vocals sound desperate. It's potential energy turning into kinetic energy. It's the introduction. It's the statement of purpose, and absolutely a standout track on the record right from the get go. You know, fight them to me. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna only add that. Yeah, if anything, too, it's it's almost like uh, Springer's. Uh, theme song in a way because it kind of encapsulates his energy his uh his whole persona and personality really at least Absolutely. in the band yeah it's yeah it's it's intense you know it's it's desperate it's it's violent mm -hmm. 
And and I think Springer definitely, you know, even if he didn't write the song or write the lyrics to the song, the way he sings that song, you know, sells that yeah. completely. He owns it. Yeah. He owns it. And, you know, and then we go into Fight Them. And in many ways, to me, Fight Them is what really starts the idea of the concept behind this, that this record was more than just about the four guys in the band who wrote these songs and played these songs. That this record was what the scene coalesced around. It's really like the first Boston hardcore band with the first Boston hardcore record on the first Boston hardcore record label. Uh-huh. And this record, you know, the kids in The Kids Will Have Their Say, it's not just those four kids. It's about the kids and the Boston crew that coalesced around them. And the lyrics in this song, you know, whereas the Minor Threat song Straight Edge was a very personal song coming from Ian's point of view, this song is not about, you know, I'm Straight Edge or I'm this, I'm that. It's about we're in touch. We're fucking straight. We'll be a force. They will pay, you know, and we will have our fucking say. You know, this is an us versus them mentality. This is a we're Boston crew. This record is about all of us. And that concept pervades this entire record, usually coalescing around the idea of straight edge, but not always. You know, there's there's jock itch. Absolutely. There's Jock Itch. There's other songs like that um, that continue that concept. You know, Headed Straight, Kids Will Have Their Say. So what do you think about that? You know, that this this concept that sort of pervades, that this record is sort of larger than just the music on it or just about the band itself? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely. And I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it really is both, in, like you said, in, in the from the minute you see the cover to hearing the music to reading the lyrics especially it's 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 a call to arms uh for the youth basically al setting the blueprint of the energy the momentum the type of scene the type of society he wants to see that he wants to create you know the the empowerment of these kids you know that that are in general disempowered and taught that they don't matter and that they should get their sense of self through means of consumption of alcohol, drugs, uh, you know, consumer this and that, much less being sent off to war, violence and all that, like being defined by sex and drugs, like it's a big middle finger to that and talking about creative energy and the power of uh, uniting people uniting kids and what what they could do is is a group is a pack you know yeah and 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 it kind of has its it has its uh and it's cousin in the song stand up by minor threat you know that that easily could have been a boston song yeah and really probably if we looked at all the major scenes and sort of the early bands who were you know, because the early hardcore bands, I mean, hardcore didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, it's hardcore punk. Yeah. It, it it was, you know, kids who were listening to the first wave of punk bands from their area mm-hmm. or, you know, beyond Sex Pistols, Ramones, and the bands in the 70s from their area that were influenced by that, but who were now coming of age, had now gotten their guitars or their drum sets or found their voice and wanted to do their own thing 
where it's going to be influenced by the older punk rock kids, but also has to be, they have to have a sense of ownership over doing something that was new and original. So, like, SSD was a focal point. It's not like SSD was the first Boston punk band. Hardly. They hardly were. Yeah. But they were the first of band yeah. of this new generation, this, this hardcore punk generation. And I think we could probably find songs like that by bands in all of the scenes of sort of a, you know, we're here, have your voice be heard kind of songs. Mm. I'm sure that was a common theme through uh, lots of bands from that time. Yeah, statement of intent and just the idea that hardcore, you know, uh, so, you know, kids in the 70s heard the Ramones and just blew their mind how fast they were. You know, after growing up in hardcore, you hear the Ramones and it's great music and it's got energy and and vibe and uh, melody, but you don't hear it and say, wow, that's so fast. Hardcore like took that and amped it up and was like, yeah, you think that's fast? Like, we're going to play as fast as we can. We're going to go balls out. We're not drugged out, you know. We're not drugged out city musician kids. We're like, you know, mostly, you know, hardcore started. Granted, Boston is not the case, but, you know, uh, for the most part, a lot of the hardcore started in the suburbs. Um, But, you know, it's, it's just the taking the the rawness of punk that which definitely has its roots in early rock and in some experimental even 60s stuff and garage rock and all that and taking all that stripping it down as far as you can to the raw just oozing mass of energy yeah and as a quick just a quick aside you know talking about boston and playing faster and faster. I mean, probably the band that influenced grindcore and power violence the most came out of Boston. I mean, that was Siege. So mm-hmm. Boston certainly, you know, when it came to the idea of taking things to a more extreme level, you know, Boston was was absolutely at the forefront of that. Yeah, so, you know, as you said about taking the the concept, the theme of straight edge, taking that th- from, you know, Ian putting it out into the world as this personal statement, and then uh, Al taking it and making it a, a, a unifying thing, a thing for his group, for kids to, to gather around and not and, and to create a, a movement, not just a uh, individual statement. You know, I like to make these kind of silly analogies, but to to me, as you were saying that, it makes me think of like, you know, Ian is like the more, <laughs> if you want to put it in literary terms, like the Thoreau philosophically, and and uh, Al would be the Emerson. So like, Ian is all about personal responsibility, personal vision, the individual, and uh, Al is all about the. Uh, collective about the society the group how are we interacting in this world what are we going to do in this world what are we going to create in this world yeah i'm going to take your word for it that that analogy works (laughs) 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 on that on that idea on that concept it you know 
fight them and you know the next couple songs after really Al lays out his worldview and as you said and it's it's not just that you know he's straight and that he wants other people to be straight that it's a good thing to be but he he takes it to the political level even you know about control keeping people sedated through through these avenues you know versus being clear-headed and uh proud of your vision and your action in the world and able to affect change you know he a big another running theme through this record is violence whether it's personal violence whether it's you know he's really it sounds like he's kind of having a debate with himself about what is the nature of violence and where when is it justified and when is it absolutely not justified you know he's not into war obviously he there's a song that that touches on child abuse there's you know then there's the ones about you know we're going to defend what the what the fuck we believe in so get out of our way kind of thing it it, it there's a lot of uh interwoven themes here and 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 they're all put so uh articulately for the time that's one thing that reading back through these lyrics they just stand head over head over shoulders over so many other hard early hardcore records be they about straight edge or anything else really they're written really well i think yeah the lyrics are not subtle um no not they're not poetic but they are focused and they are filled with sort of a singular intent, um, a, a very specific idea or ideas that Al wanted to get across, which is why, again, that kind of goes to the idea that this, this record to me is a single entity rather than really a collection of songs. I mean, it's, it's, it's the sum being, you know, greater than the parts as far as I'm concerned. You know, when I listen to this record, I'm almost not even thinking of, oh, you know, there's, you know, there's War Threat, there's Teach Me Violence, there's Screw. To me, it's just mm-hmm. one long statement. It's, well, not even that long, but, you know, <laughs> one entity, one one okay. singular purpose or idea that pervades the entire record from, from beginning to end. And no, I like the lyrics because they come from a very, very genuine place from, you know, a young, you know, a young adult. I'm not sure exactly how old Al was when they made this record, but I'm assuming he was maybe in his very early 20s or maybe even younger than that. And, you know, it sounds, it sounds someone, he had something to say. You know, he had something say- that he wanted to put mm-hmm. out into the world. And I think on that, on that level, this record, yeah, on, on, well, on that level, this record really succeeds. Yeah, absolutely. So I yeah, think we should and- talk about, oh, I'm sorry. Good. Cut that out. <laughs> oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, and that's a good point. And I, I think that, uh, I think he would even, possibly even agree that, with the vision he had, which comes through loud and clear in the lyrics, I think really strongly. I think musically, he might even agree that he didn't quite achieve uh, the uh, specificity and uh, intent that he wanted with with the music married to the lyrics on this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that his, his ability to write songs or put together songs hadn't quite reached the rest of his ideas just yet, but he certainly would reach that on Get It Away. I think that is where, yeah, hands you know, down. 
Absolutely. So that, I think that's that's where get it get it away is really um, the complete package, and that's where kids, you know, has its deficiency. I think is in the is in the song craft of the songs, but you know the ideas behind them, and that's not to say that there aren't some great musical moments on this album because there are. It's a great listen, mm-hmm. you know, and I love simple raging one chord hardcore. I mean, I love that <laughs> stuff. So this album does work for me. It's definitely an album I will listen to again for sure. I just think they get it away has the more developed song craft without going, you know, to the next phase, you know, of mm-hmm. where uh, how we rock, which I still like. I, I do like I how do we too. rock. I do too. Um, I do like how we rock, and you know, and then even further along to break it up, which I think even Al himself admits was probably a bit of a failure, mm-hmm. but. On this record, yeah, and I think I think that we should talk about, you know, because it's interesting, because in Minor Thread, you know, Ian is the conceptualist of that band. It is also the one singing his own lyrics. But on this album, you know, Al is not the mouthpiece. Uh, no. uh, Springer is. And I, and I think that we should talk about Springer's performance on this record. So what do you, what do you think of Springer on this record? Yeah, well, as with... You know, uh, early going back to bands like even, yeah, like say The Who, Roger Daltrey didn't write the lyrics, Pete Townsend did, and Roger Daltrey was the mouthpiece for Pete, for Pete Townsend, and that's a kind of similar dynamic here, and, and, and they're smart to do so because, you know, I don't know what Al's like as a singer, but Springer really delivers these songs, man. Like you said, I... Uh, he is just the voice of howling chaos and churning emotion, really. He's like a... He, he, it reminds me of, like, a rabid animal with a Boston accent. It's like that Springer right there, man. He's got this shambolic, shamanic type of uh, just raw passion to him. And that's what these songs need to deliver, man. So they're not so polemic sounding. So they're not so... Uh, monotone and with some of the one two kind of polka style thrash on this record yeah i mean i i do want to just quickly interject and say that uh chris foley's drumming on this album is is great i i really want to recognize that i think he's the very first thing we hear on boiling point or one of the first things we hear with his drum rolls and he does a lot of interesting things actually on this album so a lot of respect for Chris Foley for, for bringing some really great drumming and some interesting rhythms. Uh, I think like Jokic has some cool rhythms. Fun to you has a lot of really cool rolling single stroke rolls. But Springer's performance on this record makes it for me. That is what sells me on this record. You know, whatever, however, you know, Springer in his own life and how much he was committed on a personal level to those lyrics I don't know but when he was in front of a microphone he sells these lyrics completely his his vocals have the intensity and the desperation and the violence that the lyrics he's singing are about you know they, they perfectly represent that yeah there are times where he just sounds like he's running out of breath um, his the introduction to not normal is one of my favorite moments of the entire record and he sells all of this perfectly. He's just manic, 
and he is going for it, and he's just completely unshackled. And it mm-hmm. works wonderfully on this and Get It Away. I think that once we start to get, you know, to more traditional hard rock, like how we rock and boil it and uh, break it, break it up, you know, I think at that point, what made his vocals such a success on the first two albums, you know, becomes a limitation with songs like that that are supposed to be a little bit more yeah. controlled and structured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, yeah controlled is... structure is not his forte. No, no. Yeah. But for this record, which is just, you know, unhinged, boiling over rage and intensity, and like you said, like a mission statement, his voice is absolutely perfect. And there, I think I mentioned earlier, there are some videos of him singing some of these songs recently, and he's still got it. You know, yeah. he, he has, he has, he is entitled to some ownership over these songs because I think of what he brought to them vocally. That's a great point. Yeah. I, that's, and that's really good to hear because over the past 10, 20 years in, in my life, whenever I hear any mention of spring of these days, it's usually kind of in a, a sighing, head shaking kind of way of, you know, damn this guy's like kind of become you know uh, clownish or whatever the case may be and there's i don't know if you've if you're familiar with uh the beastie boys paul paul's boutique album there's a there's a lyric on there which i should have uh if i was you i would have had it you know pulled up already but i'm not so prepared uh but there's a lyric on there where they talk about doing acid with Springer. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah, not not totally. Um, you know, I guess I guess not totally surprising. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Chris Foley. Uh, his I feel like his drumming. So Springer really, like, sells this record. Sells it emotionally. Sells it like, just like energetically. And Chris Foley is kind of almost like the, in some weird way, like the band leader, even though that was Al in real life, like musically, it's like the drums are kind of directing everything on this. They're like the, the traffic, uh, the traffic, what's it called? Traffic director? Traffic cop? Anyway, the, <laughs> the, the drums are kind of where everything gets defined, like he his little roles, his his breakdowns, his, uh, his fills, all of that kind of defines where, where it's going to go into the thrash parts, where, where it's the slow parts, where, how intense the, the, the riff's going to be. And he does a, he does a great, almost the entire thing for me, except for the thrash parts. I think he is great drummer, mid tempo and slow. And then once we get to the kind of mushy, thrashy parts, it's it's like being stuck inside a washing machine. And, you know, I could interchange at least five or six of these songs and not know the difference if you just played the music on the fast parts for me. Yeah, which is which is why I said before that to me, this record really hangs together well, not necessarily as a collection of individual songs, but as just sort of a one continuous listen. And I think that that kind of brings me to want to talk about the one song that sort of sticks out, um, sticks out a little bit, and that's How Much Art, mm-hmm. which is uh, 
you know, a, a certainly, uh, you know, a shot at the older generation. Yeah. Um, the sort of, you know, the, the drony, artsy, new wavy kind of stuff that was coming out of Boston. Um, I think it was an interesting choice not to put this song at the end of the record, which is maybe where a lot of bands would have put it. Mm-hmm. But instead, they put it at the end of side one, almost as a bit of an intermission, a little bit of a space to get a to get a breather before uh, the relentless energy of side two, maybe with the exception of Police Beat. Yeah. But uh, How Much Art, I think, deserves its own little conversation because I think it's really successful at what it's trying to do. It's it's a bit of a meta song in a way because it's it's obviously doing the very thing that it is mocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love it. And again, it's it's another song that really works because of the way Springer the way Springer sells this song and is is committed to it. I mean, it's it's an epic. It's three minutes long. It's huge. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, uh, what do you think of how much art and its place on the record? Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. It, it's like, I, you know, like I said, I used to have these live tapes and got lost along the years, but, uh, makes me wonder where they would play it at a show. It feels like a spot that you'd put it in a set, like the middle of the set to kind of get a breather. And so people can kind of tune as they're playing and kind of give people a, uh, chance to catch their breath before the next uh, pit starts and chaos or whatever yeah and you know I, I love that you said it's meta it really is and you know the the dirgy kind of groove of it like I'm always a fan of that style it's it's kind of like the uh, if you put sheer terror from from government issue you know mashed it up with damaged you know it's it's that kind of just slow grinding groove that with the singer kind of howling over top. And in this case, like somewhat, you know, semi-sarcastically and with that kind of uh, mocking howl. And I think it's super successful. I mean, it's one of those songs that you instantly have in your head the the minute you hear it, you know, whereas I, I don't know if that's the case with all these songs, but I don't think anyone that hears how much art is gonna not have that 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 riff and that that line in their head for a while afterwards. One thing I would just add to that uh, that makes that that just came to me is you know obviously Al created his own thing, created that scene, that scene essentially the whole Boston hardcore scene, and helped define the character of it, which is huge in a in and of itself even if he never recorded a note, of which he did, of course. But, you know, obviously he was inspired by DC, probably wouldn't have come up with Straight Edge on his own, but took it to a whole nother place, had the Discord label put on his, on Kids Will Have Their Say. And, you know, I can't, I don't know what the timeline is necessarily. I guess we could check, but I wouldn't be surprised if, SSD adding that second guitar had something to do with all the DC bands all of a sudden adding second guitars as well, beefing up the sound. And it's a, it made for an amazing record, yeah. Like, Get It Away is that much more powerful and that much more just mind-blowingly over the top as far as energy. Yeah. 
So, so to wrap it up, I mean, so what do you think of this record overall? I mean, is it a record that you think you're going to revisit? I mean, there's no denying the historical importance of this record. Um, and I know that people who were there at the time and were there when this record came out probably are very, you know, have, have a real emotional commitment to this record that you and I might not have. But how do you feel this record, you know, how does it, as far as it's standing up to its own legacy? Well, it's hard. I mean, I kind of feel the way you did about Flex Your Head, perhaps. And I did have a deep emotional attachment to Flex Your Head and of the time. So it was hard for me to distance myself from that to have the long view. But yeah, with this... I kind of feel like it's obviously an important record, obviously a historic record. Uh, does it does it hold up if you if you have no context for it today? I don't know. I really don't know if it would. Um, unlike you, I think if anything, honestly, I would probably like say if I was making a tape of it or whatever, I would I would put like. The best four or five songs of it together right before uh get it away on a tape or on a cd that's kind of how i would approach listening to it at this point honestly how about you i do like this record i, I will revisit this record again in my life i don't think you know from afar from my perch of several years and a hundred miles removed <laughs> that that the music necessarily lives up to its own historical value. But I do think it's a good record, and I do think it's a good lesson, and I, it definitely encapsulates a certain time and a certain emotion. But I will reach Forget It Away every time. And, and I wish, you know, it was, clear, it was clear that the progression from Kids Will Have Their Say to getting a second guitar player in Francois, yeah. to get it away to how we rock to break it up. That this was never a band that was going to stay in one place. This was never a band that was just going to continue to make hardcore records. Yeah. But I kind of wish I had another hardcore record mm -hmm. in between Get It Away and How We Rock. Oh God, yeah. Because Get It Away is Get It Away is just so it's good. So good. I, I even a seven inch. I, I want more even of even a seven inch. I would have been happy with you know. Yeah, I want more. I want more of that and get it and kids will have their say to get it away isn't such a huge leap it's just a refinement of songcraft mm -hmm. and get it away to how we rock uh, I would have something in between there you know for Definitely. me but no I I do like this record I'm not sure it lives up to its I think it's a more historically important record than it is a musically great record but I think Get It Away does live up to that. Oh, yeah. So that's where I'll leave it as far as... Jonathan Anastas, founding member and bassist for DYS, who are still a, a going concern, and hopefully we'll get to see them over in Europe next year when this pandemic issue... Closes out, maybe some U.S. shows too. Maybe some new songs in the future, I don't know. Um, and he was also played in Slapshot for a bit. So this is, 
from my conversation with Jonathan. SSD was everything in a lot of ways. There wouldn't have been a DYS without an SSD for a lot of reasons. There wouldn't have been an X claim, obviously, without an SSD, which means there wouldn't have been the legacy of all those X claim releases. Because without Al's help, I'm not sure all those other bands were as motivated and would have figured it out, right? You think about like, you know, X claim number four, he's got his formula down. I'm getting the sleeves printed here. I'm getting the records printed there. I'm getting the labels printed there. I can afford 2000. They go to this distributor, that distributor, and this distributor. I'm not sure those skill sets existed in some of the other bands. He literally helped recast one incarnation of SSD. They put us on bills. And also like anything like they say about, you know, learning how to ski better by skiing behind somebody who's better than you. Like, I really feel like we travel in their wake a bit, which is like, oh, that's what a tour looks like. Oh, that's what a, you know, record cycle looks like of sort of like recording, promoting, distributing. Oh, that, you know, oh, look, there's room to evolve beyond this. So I, I can truly say, at least from my perspective, there wouldn't have been much without them. Everybody's musical experiences, especially and experiences overall, are colored by what happened in the time where it came out. You know, there's the old joke about like, you know, men stop changing their fashion beyond the date and time they thought they were the coolest. There was Damaged, there was the first Bad Brains cassette, there were a couple other things, and then there was Kids Will Have Their Say. And A, it was the first one of those things that was ours, and ours meaning Boston Hardcore, right? B, if you go back and look at it, it's more of a total package than some of those other records. Like, I think, I mean, well, it came later, so it's not fair. Damaged is a total package, right? The cover, the songs, the performances. I'm actually not sure that first Bad Brains cassette is actually a package to the same degree. It was image, it was layout, it was songs. I think most people would say from a recorded perspective, you know, Get It Away is the pinnacle, which is sort of rare for a second record if you look at most bands, but Kids is iconic. She has the upcoming book, I Will Not Hold Your Coat. She also is co-authoring the SSD 
biography coming up. And, you know, she's just got a million great stories. She was there since the beginning, and she's got a lot to say. You won't be uh, let down with this interview. And as advertised, it was a special uh, treat, like total surprise for Al to jump into the conversation towards the end. So, yeah, here we go. Yeah, well, thanks for being with us, Nancy. And it's great, you know, one, to have a female perspective, like you're the first female interviewed on the show. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and not the last, (laughs) but, uh, you know, and also just someone who's been a part of so much uh, history, especially with East Coast punk and, uh, you know, your stories that you share online is, are so, uh, so entertaining and kind of put you right in the moment. So, you know, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Why don't we start with a little bit of uh, your personal backstory, like how you found your way to the punk scene and uh, what that looked like for you? Okay, Um, I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia, uh, upper middle class neighborhood. I went to private Catholic school. My father was a Marine. My mother was a stay at home mother. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have a whole lot of um, personal freedom, so to speak, I guess, you know, I had a very idyllic life. I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining at all, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, I always felt a little uh, restrained. And at a very, very early age, I started listening to music. And it was funny when I, when I started writing my book, I realized that one of the things that was just so important to me as a kid growing up was a jukebox, you know, it was something mm-hmm. I never, ever even thought about as an adult until I started writing like you know we had a jukebox where we would go eat lunch you know we had jukeboxes I belonged to a swim club and I I was introduced to like so many bands through that jukebox from Led Zeppelin to Tommy James and the Shondells you know Mm -hmm. Um, jukebox in my high school even you know I can remember being terrified the first day of freshman year and walking into the cafeteria and hearing uh you know, David S. is uh, rock on, you know, and uh-huh. thinking, oh, oh, I'm okay, I'm going to be okay, you know. So, I, you know, I, I started listening to music. And then, you know, initially in high school, I was, you know, very involved. I did student council, you know, things like that. I, I very quickly got disillusioned by uh, my teachers and the whole high school environment, you know, and, and I started to get more involved in, in music. And I had a lot of older uh, gay friends who really kind of took me under their wing. And they were really the ones initially who introduced me to, you know, and my older sister as well, to mm-hmm. people like T-Rex and Bowie and Mott the Hoople. And I, you know, I loved mm-hmm. glam rock a lot, mm-hmm. you know. And then um, as I got to be in junior and senior year, that's when I found out about like Patti Smith, the Ramones, Blondie, Iggy Pop, you know, and started right. going to shows. And then from there, it just, you know, kind of took off and spread out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It seems it's interesting, especially of a certain generation. It seems like uh, glam was the gateway. And then also uh, 
for for kids a little just slightly younger it was new wave you know yeah yeah you know and and it's and it's funny my husband um for him you know it was more like hard rock he wasn't into the glam rock and i you know i liked i liked that stuff too i liked zeppelin and i liked uh Mm -hmm. aerosmith and and uh acdc as well you know and queen queen was huge back um so yeah everybody has their you know their gateway drugs so it's uh you know that's where it took me yeah yeah i remember gosh must have been the end of uh right before junior high but in school uh going into the cafeteria when i was first getting into some punk and still listening to some new wave but bring in a acdc record i i had and break it you know breaking it symbolically in the in the cafeteria and later regretting it of course because it was a great record but <laughs> right right yeah so i had read you started help start a byo in philadelphia yes yes so when um you know after i moved out of my parents house and got my first little studio apartment in the city and i worked right around the corner and then i had all this freedom you know and i started going to the punk clubs and i met people and um i started dating a guy who started a band and we uh called the sadistic exploits and we wanted to start doing our own shows and so we rented out an elk center and we put on punk festivals and you know called bands up to do shows and um in that process i met a woman named allison schnackenberg who you know she's a little younger than me but but just a visionary a real pioneer and she and I and Ron Thatcher and a couple other people were really, we really liked Sean Stern's model out in California. And I used to, you know, I don't, I don't even know how I started talking to Sean on the phone, but back then, like the scene was so small. So you just, you know, you just call people on the phone. Oh, yeah. you know, yeah, it was so crazy. So, you know, I used to call Sean on the phone all the time and talk to him. So when we decided, you know, like we wanted to recreate his model there, you know, I asked him, you know, do, do we have your blessing? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, gave us the, you know, the, the guidelines and stuff. And so mm-hmm. um, you know, the first show that we did together was that, you know, the infamous Buff Hall show with Minor Threat, SSD Control, Agnostic Front, Flag of Democracy, and Crib Death, and Camden, New Jersey, of all places, you know. Yeah, that's kind of a legendary show, yeah. And so I actually, you know, I didn't work with the BYO much beyond that, because about a month later, I moved to Boston to be with Al and mm. and but Allison and the uh, Ron and the other people they continued the BYO down there and you know they they had a skate ramp and everything you know they really took it they really took it far so it was uh it was yeah pretty that's cool, cool. Yeah, yeah that is cool and I, I was that's what I was wondering too like what what if anything besides like the actual uh, putting on shows you know element of the BYO you know yeah that you know yeah, so I mean, we, you know, we had a fanzine that we used to communicate, you know, a lot of our everything from our, you know, musical taste to, to politics to social justice issues, you know, mm-hmm. we had that. Um, and then, you know, there was so much, you know, interconnectedness with like skating and, and, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, it all kind of just built up into this, you know, really kind of cool movement. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that that's fascinating because that's kind of what happened in DC with a little bit later younger generation, but with 
the whole positive force and all that, that was like a uh, taken from Kevin Seconds. That, you know, he had had something called positive force out, out where he was. And, right. you know, we used that model and, and uh, you know, obviously it turned into a whole DC thing too with a lot of the social justice, the putting on shows and kind of keeping the community connected, all that sort of thing. So it, it's, cool. it's cool. It's cool to hear about that around the country, that kind of thing was going on. What was your introduction to SSD? So, you know, just like everybody else back then, there was a really cool record store in Philadelphia called uh, Third Street Jazz and something, I forget what the end of it is, but that was like the record store to buy punk and hardcore records. So, you know, every Saturday you'd go down there and see what was released and, you know, what was on the wall and the guys that worked there were really cool. And so I bought the SSD control record, uh, brought it home, played it and was just floored by it. Like so much power, you know, I just loved it. I thought it was amazing. And then, you know, when I pulled out the insert, it said SSD control wants to play your city. And there was a phone number. So I said, Oh hell yeah, I'm going to get this band to come and play a show in Philly. So I called the number up, you know, on the, on the, insert and um i ended up talking to al for like four hours on the phone which was very yeah very expensive (laughs) you know phone call back then Mm -hmm. and um you know we knew of course you know you knew a lot of the same people so you had a lot to talk about and he ended up he couldn't do the show that i wanted him to do they had a they were playing somewhere else that night and so at the end of the phone call he invited me to come and see ssd play with uh the dead kennedys in Staten Island. And so, you know, I had no idea how I was going to get to Staten Island. I didn't have a driver's license or anything, you know, <laughs> but uh, I was like, oh yes, I will be there. You know, he's like, I'll put you on the list. I was like, cool. And uh, so I went up to see them play that weekend, that Friday night. And oh man, they just blew me away. They were so intense and so powerful and so explosive and so good. I was like, oh, I love this band. And mm-hmm. you know, I met I met Al afterwards and you know, we talked for a little bit and then there was a big riot broke out and then we got separated and and you know, but we kept in touch over the phone and stuff <laughs> and uh, met up well, in New York a couple more times and then that's sort of how it took off. So you you say that uh so nonchalantly like what what happened? <laughs> like how did Oh, with the riot? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the riot? Well, Uh um, from what I understand, you know, um, I had a friend who, she was actually a New Yorker uh, named Lazar. And uh, Lazar was fearless and crazy and (laughs) wild. Uh And, you know, she and I hung out in New York together and got into some capers. Um, But I heard she was at the kind of the epicenter of the fight that a guy said (laughs) something or did something and she hit him with a chain. I think I think Roger from Agnostic Front could back that up. Um, She hit the guy with a chain. And then, you know, the next thing you know, like people were smashing windows, bottles were flying everywhere. And I had, you know, I had driven up with some friends. So I was like, oh, you know, I got to get, I got to find them before, you know, the cops come, you know, and just everything. And luckily they had a red pickup truck. So I, you know, I can remember like running down the street saying, where the hell's that red pickup truck, you know, as, as glass shattered around me and people were running everywhere, you know, so uh, pretty mild as riots go that I've uh, been in, but, um, (laughs) you know, still, you know, it's, it's, you know, sort of like another Friday night in the hardcore scene, but, um, yeah. you know, it, it was uh, pretty, pretty intense. You know, the one, the one the next night in Philly was 
uh, when Dead Kennedys played in Philly was worse because that's the one, the show where the locals threw a bomb at us. So, oh my um, God. You know, they one, threw a one, bomb? They threw a homemade bomb at us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was kind of crazy. So, um, yeah, so Al and I got separated, but, you know, we kept in touch over the phone and stuff. So, well, that's, that's a, a pretty memorable uh, first first if meeting, if not date. Yes, you know? very much so. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and, and explosive in more than one ways, huh? That's crazy. Yes. Wow. Now, so speaking of, the, of uh, SSD Live, like, what's, what would you say is, would that be, or what was the most memorable show for you, and why? Of, of all their shows? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, okay, so of all their shows, I, you know, I mean, that one is definitely in the top three because it was the first time that I ever saw them. It was a huge audience. The crowd was just, you know, massive and going crazy. Um, mm -hmm. The Buff Hall show was like super intense and, uh, and really, really good. And then when they played um, the Santa Monica Civic Center, when SSD did their first tour in 1983 um, in California, uh -huh. you know, seeing them there, oh man, they just kicked ass at that show too. They were really, you know, they were just really, really sledgehammer potency on point, you know, they were just, yeah. you know, when SSD was on, they were on, boy, you, you couldn't touch them, you know, um, everybody you know everybody in the band was just you know so high energy and mm -hmm. uh, and you know they were tight and everything lots of times you know al broke strings and that would sort of ruin momentum and stuff but in those three shows they were pretty flawless you know pretty great oh yeah i mean that i just remember uh growing up you know first hearing them and then just seeing any photo i saw of them live just looked insane like, yeah you never really see a boring photo of ssd you know they always look really intense yeah. i love that i love that about them you know and part of that is that you know they had great photographers you know shooting them all the time glenn friedman's own flash you know mm. um allison braun like really you know uh, bridget uh, burpee um so you know they were they had some great people taking photos but yeah they they were always you know, they, they were high energy, you know, and really powerful on stage. I love yeah. that. And that's one thing that it seems like, besides maybe The Clash or something, that a lot of hardcore band, you know, or some hardcore bands kind of brought to the equation was like, not just playing fast or playing energetic music, but like just bringing that to the stage, that, that kind of intense chaos, you know? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. When you saw a band, you know, like, I mean, of course, you know, the top of that, the top of the heap with that is Bad Brains. Like, you know, I remember the first time I saw the Bad Brains, I was like, what the, <laughs> oh my God, you know, I, I like, couldn't even believe, you know, how great they were, you know, Bad Brains, Black Flag, SSD, mm -hmm. Minor Threat, those four bands, you know, seeing them live, Dead Kennedys too, you know, seeing them live was just like super, you know, uh, physical and cerebral yeah. experience at the same time, you know? <laughs> um, and I, and I love that. That's what I really liked about, um, hardcore was the, you know, the physicality of it, the way it kind of got in your, your head and your heart at the same time, you know? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and physical and, and the nature of the sound itself too, it felt like you were being bludgeoned by the, by, by the bands when it was, when they're when they're that intense when they're exactly that you know you'd, you'd go home and you'd just be like completely drained you know <laughs> mm -hmm. like, wow that was a great night you know 
since this show is going to be talking about the release, you know, kids will have their say. What was your first impressions of it? And uh, maybe first songs that jumped out at you, that sort of thing? I mean, when, you know, that's the record that really, you know, kind of set me off and made me, uh, you know, uh, make that phone call to Al because there was really nothing really like it out at that time, you know? And of Mm -hmm. course, you know, I was, you know, I was a lyric person, you know, some people aren't. I like the lyrics to their songs, short and sweet as they are. You know, Mm -hmm. I thought they were really, you know, powerful. I loved um, probably, let's see, if I had to pick my, my favorite songs would be Boiling Point and, mm-hmm. and uh, How Much Art, of course, you know, was, <laughs> was such a great song, you know, and so, so, so perfect, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, I like Not Normal. Um, I like Police Beat, you know, there's just a lot of really good songs. And I, and I thought the lyrics, you know, even though they were short, I thought they were smart, you know? Yeah, and, and, they were uh, articulate for... Yeah, you know, I... Uh, you know, I was, I thought the the writing was kind of sharp, you know? So, um, yeah, that record. And, and, and of course, you know, I, I guess you can't talk about the kids will have their say without talking about that photo on the oh, front. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, oh my God, like I had that framed in my house, whether I was, you know, whether I married Al or not, that, mm-hmm. that record is like that yeah. cover art that shot is so iconic. And yeah, it's so, one of the, one of the top, hardcore yeah uh, absolutely you know I, I can remember like looking at that for like a really long time and then even on the insert because when I when I talked to Al on the phone I wasn't really sure like which guy I was talking to you know I knew I was talking to <laughs> someone from SSD but I didn't know if it was Springer Jamie Al like who Chris who, who it was you know and I can remember like getting off the phone and saying all right like which guy did I talk to and then looking at that picture of Al and being like ooh this guy's like kind of scary looking you know like there weren't a lot of like there weren't a lot of like you know muscular guys in punk rock and hardcore at the time you know mm-hmm. and so I was like wow like look at this band like that shot that on the insert was just like unbelievable and then and then the lettering you know the uh the lettering was you know so in your face you know so strong so powerful I love that too oh, so yeah. you know that was just uh you know that's just a really uh seminal record I think to come out you know, during that time. And obviously it had a huge impact on me because, you know, I ended up uh, marrying the guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're right. <laughs> I mean, down to the graphics, like you said, I mean, it, it's all very intentional and well done. Like, I'm glad you brought up even just the lettering because those SSD shirts, like I'd see bands wearing those and I was like, I got to, you know. Yeah. It's just so, you know, one of those perfect uh, punk rock t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, I can remember when, you know, when, when I, it was like the second time I met Al in person, uh, he, had, he had called me and asked me if I was going to go see MDC was playing at a place called 2 Plus 2 in Boston. And he asked me if I was going to mm-hmm. go, I said, yeah, I'll go, I'll go up and see him. And I remember I met him and Jamie on the street and they had the box of t-shirts there, you know, and he showed me that one. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is kind of cool, you know, and he gave me one of each, you know, one, one was that, you know, the big iconic SSD one, and mm-hmm. then the one just said SSD control, and he gave me one of each. And I was like, I love these, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's really great. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, obviously, <laughs> 
you know, it goes without saying you've, you've gotten to know Al as, as much as anyone possibly could. Like when you met him, did he already have that vision? You know, it seems like he, he really, it didn't seem like he grabbed a guitar and, and said, let's play some songs. It seemed like he had his comprehensive. Oh yeah, he, he definitely had his, um, his plan, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really, you know, that kind of was really interesting to me because I found that out probably more, you know, after I moved to Boston than before, you know, before. Like, I mean, obviously I knew he was in a band and then, you know, I found out, you know, you never know who wrote the lyrics of us, you know, until you look, I guess, or they tell you, you know, and so, you know, the fact that Al wrote the lyrics to Uh most of the songs on the kids will have their say, I thought was pretty cool. But then when I moved to Boston and I kind of found out that, um, you know, Al had really, and I don't think anybody will deny this. I don't think it sounds, you know, it's grandiose or anything. You know, he had really created the hardcore scene in Boston and, um, you know, he was really, he had a vision and he had this like pioneering sensibility and he, you know, he brought it to fruition. And of course, you know, everything was layered in the whole straight edge movement, which, you know, when I met him, I wasn't straight edge, you know, I was smoking a cigarette the first time I met him, you know, so, you know, know, that was, uh, you know, that was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of wild. And then when I, when I moved there and I saw, you know, the amount of respect and, you know, that kind of like, I don't know how to sound, say this without, you know, sounding kind of cheesy, but like people listened to what he had to say, you know, and, mm-hmm. and people, you know, carried on, you know, what, what he wanted to do. And I thought that that was, um, you know, I thought that that was really, really cool. Al's like, you know, he's kind of like a no nonsense, straight up like kind of guy. There's like zero bullshit about him. And um, Mm -hmm. at first that was like kind of hard, you know, because everybody's got some bullshit about him. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. but like if you ask, you know, even my mother, when my mother first met Al, she was like, you know, he really put me off when I first met him, but, but, (laughs) you know, she's like, I really grew to like him because, you know, you know exactly where you stand with Al Burrell, you know, like he's just no, you know, he's not fake or phony and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, that could, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, you know, but he will tell you straight up, he doesn't have any kind of uh, um, guile. Or, oh, yeah. know, <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, he's, that's, there's no subterfuge, there's nothing, you know, it just comes right out. And so, um, yeah, I was really impressed by, you know, the entire Boston scene. It's, you know, how many great bands there were, how diverse they were in, in what they, the kind of music that they played. You know, people look now and they'll be, you know, they come back and they'll say like, oh, you know, I already like dressed the same or like, and I'm like, it really wasn't like that. You know, there were, you know, there were bands from Gangrene to SSD to Proletariat, mm-hmm. you know, there was a, right. a wide range of uh, bands under that hardcore umbrella, you know? Sure. And the freeze, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It made it really fun to, you know, go out and see bands play. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of what, unfortunately, what happens th- over time anyway, whether it's through what what's documented or what becomes popular in a town, it seems like uh, it gets narrowed down to these few elements, whereas, you know, in the moment, there's so much more going on, of course. Right, right. There was a lot going on, like, a you know, a ton. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned uh, how much art, like, which is one of the first, you know, that was 
obviously it's so different than the other songs and jumped out at me too. And I remember having a couple old uh, live tapes of them and they would always kind of do interesting stuff on that song. But right. uh, was that song kind of directed at like Mission of Burma at the time or? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it was to Mission of Burma. I know there were, you know, there were, there were certain bands Al had in mind. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at, at the time, you know, Boston had a lot of art bands, what you would probably consider art bands, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Al came from, you know, a rock and roll background, you know, favorite band, probably Cheap Trick, you know, ACDC, bands like that, and at Queen. That's where, you know, that's where he was coming from. And I don't think he got the art sensibility as much, you know. He wanted the, you know, the, the heavy guitar driven in your face, you know, pounding drums, pounding bass kind of <laughs> kind of thing. And and um and and he didn't feel, you know, I don't want to speak for Al, but like sure. just from, you know, we I, I've interviewed Al myself, you know, for for the book that we're doing. And uh -huh. um, you know, he just said he didn't find his place when he went into Boston. He couldn't find his place in the Boston music scene. So he didn't feel, you know, he was part of that art scene, you know, he wasn't an art school kid and yeah. and uh you know that wasn't that wasn't his background he was from Lynn that's you know working class hockey player kind of uh background and so he created it himself and so yeah. I thought you know, I think that's kind of cool <laughs> you know yeah and I mean that's that's amazing and that seems to be kind of a common story as well with like different leaders and scenes like like Ian and DC you know they didn't see uh, the existing music scene going on. So they just did their, they started playing their own thing. And that, right, you know, right. That, that's what's amazing to me, like still to this day about punk and hardcore, you know, just to have that kind of vision of being like, you know, not just complaining about what was there, but, you know, hey, we're going to play the kind of stuff that I want to hear. <laughs> right, exactly. How did it end up being a uh, split release? Do you know? Well, because Al and Ian were friends, you know, they, they talked over the phone, they wrote letters to each other. And when Al decided to create his own label, you know, he thought that Discord would give him some credibility, you know, uh -huh. and, he, and he talked to Ian and Ian said, you know, okay. And so, you know, that's, that's you know, that that's... I always thought that was kind of a cool story too, that, you know, Ian let them jump on and stuff. Even, you know, I think, you know, everything was done up here through Al. I don't know that, um, yeah, it was, it's, you know, it's kind of neat that, that how people supported each other and, you know, worked together to make, you know, something happen like that. And it's pretty oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, you know, let, let them just even just put the discord label on there to give some legitimacy to, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, that's, you know, I had, I had Discord releases. So, you know, like, um, maybe that's why I picked it up. Like, I don't remember now, you know, but certainly seeing that on there gave it cachet, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That kind of goes into my next question, which is about uh, the, the relationship between Al and SSD and DC and just kind of the Boston bands in general and DC bands, both the you know, the positive and the, you know, occasional rivalry or whatever that you hear about? Yeah, I mean, I always saw kind of DC and, and um, 
and Boston on the same page about a lot of stuff, you know. Of course, Al took, you know, the whole straight edge thing kind of to the to the next level. I don't know. I don't know how <laughs> Ian felt about that, you know. I mean, they're two different two different kinds of people, but I think they both have a lot of respect for each other. Um, in in Philly, you know, for example, you know, the DC kids when they came to Philly, you know, it was just, you know, it was a, a, a you know that was probably the worst riot that I was ever in at the SOA Black Flag show in Kensington. You know, that's, uh, uh, you know, that, that was a, that was a, you know, horror show. And, um, and New York, at, you know, they, they weren't, you know, they didn't have that kind of camaraderie that DC and Boston did. And mm-hmm. I never, I never really saw any even rivalry between the, you know, those, those bands like, Minor Threat and SSD, they work together, you know, like we, I, you know, I did a show with Minor Threat up here where I uh, booked them into a place called The Channel, which, you know, it, it's probably one of my biggest personal accomplishments that I knew that show was going to make a lot of money. And okay. I, I, it, I just, you know, harassed and I was relentless to get them a good, a, a good payout, you know, and, and they couldn't have, you know, they could have cared less about money, you know, but I was like, I'm going to, you know, and I, and I did, and I, you know, I, I still have the contract. I don't know if you saw, I, you know, I posted it one time, you know, I posted it. Oh, no, I didn't see it, that. You know, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I still, I, you know, I, I stumbled upon the contract and I'm like, you know, as I just really, that's, that's a proud moment in my, uh, in my, in my hardcore career that, that I was able to, you know, get the money. So like, you know, we, Boston went down and played there, you know, they came up here and played a couple of times. And, and so it was, you know, it was a mutually beneficial relationship. I, you know, I never saw any kind of animosity or, or rivalry at all. You know, I, I just saw nothing but love even to this day, you know. Uh You were already kind of buying discord releases and that sort of thing when you, when, when you got the SSD, uh, you said? Yeah, at, this, at the same time, you know, I had SOA and Teen Idols and uh, Flex Your Head. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like, I really, really liked the DC, you know, sound. I thought it was pretty powerful and cool, too, you know. And I, uh, when SOA and Black Flag played in Philly, you know, I was really excited to, to you know, to see um, SOA mostly, you know, I'd already seen Black Flag with Dez as singer. And so it was at a place called in Kensington, which is like a lower, I don't even know how to put it, you know, it's a white, a poor white community, I guess uh-huh. is just, you know, the, the best way to put it. And the locals there did not want punks in their neighborhood. They were very territorial. Um, there had been incidents there before, but you know, we were kind of fearless back then. And so we, you know, went to the show and I can remember, you know, my friend Chuck Meehan warning Ian about these locals and saying like, you know, this isn't like your, you know, (laughs) this is, this is, you know, different, you know, but they didn't really listen. And, and it's funny. I I went down to discord house uh, to talk to Ian uh, about my book and uh, get his version of this night because you know, this night was just so bad. So the locals came in and they basically set up the DC kids and then, um, you know, in in what way, 
you, they sent some little kids in to throw some punches. And when the DC kids ran out, it was complete setup. The DC kids ran uh-huh. out, you know, they were waiting for him with pipes and knives and guns, <laughs> you, know, oh not, my God. <laughs> you know, just baseball bats and stuff. And, and, you know, it was just crazy. And, and the sad thing about it was like the locals didn't differentiate between DC punks and Philly punks and, and DC punks didn't differentiate between us and the locals. I took a punch to the face from a DC skin and, uh, you know, got knocked down and ended up macing everybody to get out the door, but it was really bad. And, and, you know, DC had a lot of very, very serious injuries from it. You know, a lot of stitches, concussions, you know, things like that. And, um, and so after that, I sort of like hated DC. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was like, I don't like these guys, you know, they're thugs and, and they're, they're, you know, they weren't smart about coming into this neighborhood. And, and, um, you know, I, I kind of saw that as a, you know, I don't know. Um, and so, uh, you know, I really loved minor threats music. And so <laughs> the first time that, you know, I met Al in July of 82 at that, at, um, at that show, uh, the Staten Island dead Kennedy show. And then we, he came to visit me in September of 82. And he was like, Oh, you know, minor threat is playing in Baltimore. How far is that from here? And I'm like, that's like an hour train ride. Oh, my dog's going to bark. Sorry. Um, I said, that's, I I told my husband, I was like, if the dog barks, you have to get him because I'm going to Um, so, um, I said, yeah, it's not that far away, you know, so we took Uh the train, you know, we took the train down and I was a little hesitant, you know, to, to meet Ian because, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And he turned out to be like, you know, so nice and smart and, and cool, you know, that, uh, you know, that started a, you know, 30, 30, almost 40 year, you know, relationship now. So, um, yeah, he's he is one of the nicest, genuine guys, and he's his memory is just, you know, it seems like yours is as well. But he he'll remember down to the what show they played, what song they played, what. Oh yeah, you know, he's the conversation. Unbelievable. <laughs> Did you follow any of the later later Discord releases? Did you kind um, of drop off around there? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, you know, everything that was out during that period, you know, I was, you know, I would buy and and eat up, you know, but I was, you know, definitely out of hardcore by 1985. Um, That was kind of it for me. (laughs) So, Uh and, you know, Fugazi, of course, when Fugazi, um, when those guys came, you know, they stayed at my house when they played in, in Boston and, um, you know, we would always go and see them. So, but that's probably, you know, really the only one. And, you know, now I, it's funny, I I just recently started like looking at at some of the, I I think I follow one of the pages, um, Discord pages, and I see, uh you know, music and stuff. And so now I'm sort of like, you know, looking at at the catalog and thinking, what should I listen to here, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's right around kind of where you dropped off around the mid 80s to early 90 well to about 90 there's there's some really good different type of music coming out of there right right yeah. i agree i feel like i had to ask what was your opinion uh then and now of of when you know ssd went a little more rock and roll direction yeah so i mean i was always supportive of whatever al wanted to do you know 
Um, and, and again, I, I did have that rock and roll background. So at the time, you know, it was part of an evolution, you know, people mm -hmm. don't kind of realize that when they look at the records, just kind of in isolation like that, you know, but Al wanted the band to grow and, and, and change. And Al, you can jump on here if you, uh, he's actually standing right here <laughs> um, and say something, you know. Um, and, and so I supported that, you know. I, I supported, the, I'll support anybody who wants to, you know, develop and- Al was trying to write better songs. Al was trying to write better songs. That's what he just <laughs> said, you know. He wanted to, you know, write better songs. And, and so, you know, I mean, people, you know, people can sit in an armchair. <laughs> Continuous improvement, yeah. So, um, you know, people can be armchair quarterbacks about, you know, what happened, but, you know, they took a shot with something that, you know, and that was the thing, like, about no, SSD. No, wait, wait, wait. All right, Al's jumping in. He's, is that okay? <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Didn't, I mean, I didn't think it was, you know, it didn't, didn't feel right to keep on just doing the same thing over. So we tried to evolve, tried to write better songs, tried to improve on the singing, Try to improve on the lit, you know, the, the whole presentation of the singing. And we tried and it didn't work. You know, I mean, if I was to do it over again, maybe I should have realized our limitations and realized that, that we should go a different direction. But I tried to push that limitations and it mm -hmm. didn't work, you know? Yeah, well, and, and that, that's a common thing, you know, as bands uh, start growing as people and, and get and developing as musicians, you know, of course you want to you want to expand what uh, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even see it. I wouldn't even say it was growing that much, to be honest. <laughs> you got to think, we just, you know, we just formed, we put that first record out within like maybe, uh, I don't know, like six months of being together. I mean, it wasn't like a typical band evolution where you get together and you maybe, I don't know, get to, like Van Halen probably didn't put a record up for like five years, right? right, right. Just, that's a bad example. I'm just trying to think of bands, <laughs> uh, you know, don't put records out so quick. Every band I've been in, within the six months of me meeting those guys, we put a record out. So... You know, there's challenges in that because it might not always be, uh, it might, the chemistry might always uh, have been, uh, evolved, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, looking back, hindsight, you know, you could say, you could pretty much predict where we peaked. And I take full responsibility for, for the, you know, uh, mistakes. But uh, once again, I didn't know really where the limitations would end up being. And we made mistakes. And I tell you, the other thing was, Think about it. You know, we, we jump in pretty early in the game. Then okay. all these bands come out that are playing super fast, okay? Really fast. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying to myself, man, these bands are a lot better than us playing fast. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. We don't sound that great when we play at that speed. So, you know, my thing was trying to figure out, well, where are we best at what we do, you know? I, uh -huh. I'm not going to try to be other bands. I'm trying to figure out, well, where are we best? You yeah, know? what's your strength? I thought I tried to find, <laughs> tried to find that trying to find it but i think i missed it you know so that that's what it really was about was trying to find out what we do well as well as trying to push it a little bit and i think you know and believe me it wasn't like uh completely uh like hindsight i mean while it was happening we were well aware of what we were doing to our audience you know? <laughs> it wasn't like it wasn't like i realized this 20 years after you know yeah i mean we yeah. realized it while it was happening you know well, and, and in some ways, that's more, that, that's like, kind of like what Black Flag was doing. It's kind of almost as punk a thing as you could do is start playing uh, more like hard rock style than in this scene that's expecting you to be like, you know, just heavy mosh. Well, I, I think the difference is, 
and I think this is where we might get lumped into that thing. Now, granted, I mean, I have a tremendous background in uh, liking hard rock bands. You know what I mean? I've never shied away from it. From the beginning, I even tried. I mean, that my ad said, I think, maybe Van Halen or something. I don't even know what it said. ACDC definitely said. It yeah. said Black Flag probably in there. Dead Kennedys maybe, you know? So, you know, that's my background. I mean, that's what it is. I have nothing, you know, that's what it is. And I like that kind of music. I just, when I found this kind of music, you know, this style a little bit differently, but I found the same thing, but just a little less phony, let's say, a little more, uh, a little more real, whatever. I don't know. I can't, I have to really think about all the adjectives. So, uh -huh. you know, when I, when I'm in the band, you know, after the first, we put that record out or whatever, I, I actually, we struggled to make that record. We tried to make that record maybe three times. Oh, really? And every time we tried to make the record, I wasn't happy with it. You know, it took a lot of time just to get, kind of get that first record off the bat, you know, get out, although it was relatively new, I mean, relatively early in the band's development, because I didn't think we could really play if we didn't have that record out. That was real. that's another thing. So I, I don't, I have to check all the dates and everything, but I don't think we played that much before the record came out, did we? I don't know. Yeah, I think the record came out pretty quick. Uh, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, were you, were you playing those, those songs live much before the record came out? Probably all around the same time. That's what I'm saying. It was kind of yeah. quick, you know. I, I definitely remember a few songs that we played in our original meetings. I definitely remember songs that didn't make the cut. So it wasn't like we just uh, put out the first. Uh, I don't even know how many songs were on it. Ten songs, twenty. I don't even know what's on there. It wasn't like we just put, the, it definitely was songs that didn't make the cut. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so then you go into record two and you figure you've been along, you've been around a little bit. Uh, you've been together a little bit. We had right. a second guitar player, changes the sounds a little bit, not, not drastically, but a little bit. He just adds, adds a little bit of a uh, flair on top of, you know, the underneath because he didn't write songs necessarily. So, so record two comes out, you know, we, we, I think of it as like, you know, wow, we hit it. It sounds pretty good, but it wasn't, wasn't complete. It was almost like we put it out, should have been more songs, but we put timing wise, we put it out, but it was definitely not a complete record. You're talking about, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. I want, I, I wanted to make sure you're talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Second, second record. record get away. So, oh yeah. That, then, that record was amazing. That, yeah. It was, it, it was, I think it caught, probably caught, I mean, that, when I say peak, I'd say that caught the peak. Okay. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. uh, and we and we did know that that was the peak, but once again, I'm trying to say, what I thought about that record was we had to work on the vocals. That was that's what I got from the second record. Okay, oh, yeah. I think yeah, all together was great, but what I got from it, man, we got to work on the vocals and see if we can figure it out. Let's say, you know, just uh -huh. figure it out. Uh -huh. What are we gonna do with the vocals? Not meaning the vocalist, but what are we gonna do with the vocals? And actually, I I feel bad because uh, I put tremendous pressure on on Springer. Maybe he didn't even know it, to be honest. Uh, he probably wasn't even aware of it. But I, mean, I put, I mean, <laughs> I thought, I felt there was tremendous pressure on him. And, may, you know, yeah, every, no one's, you know, we, no one, I'm not a group, you know, whatever. No one says we're up to it, okay? Uh -huh. So we, we tried to, you know, to, to evolve, evolve the singing a little bit. And it really didn't happen. I mean, you could say the next two records, yeah, whatever. I don't know. I can't be objective about it because I know that uh, really was a mess. That's what I would say. I mean, I know some people are fans of the, of the next two records or whatever, yeah, yeah. but uh, they missed, you know, that's uh -huh. my opinion in the end. So I don't want to ruin away. people's- You think Get It Away missed? No, oh. the next no. two records, <laughs> <laughs> And when Break It Up came, we were already broken up, basically. That's why the name is there, you know? I mean, oh, we were really? done. So that's like, 
it's like a post-mortem record. I mean, it came out because we recorded it. I gave it to a label that I really didn't even care about just to put it out because I, I didn't want to put it out because I didn't even like it, you know? So <laughs> yeah, being honest with you, I mean, I never yeah, said yeah. that, but it's like 50 years later sure, or whatever. But I didn't want to put it out myself because I really wasn't that proud of it, you know? Mm. Now, you can, if you're a fan of the band, I think it was important to put it out because, I mean, it showed kind of what was happening, you know? So, so I'm not saying I put it out in a negative way. I put it out because, you know, you, I, want, I believe in documenting the whole thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, so good or bad, it's coming out. That's my opinion. So, huh. so, that, so we put it out. And, uh, you know, but, but I mean, I knew, we knew then, we knew when we put it out, it was not a good period, you know? So, so we had the discussion that, hey, it's probably, we got to break it up. We got to break up, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and really, uh, the mistake, I think, uh, the, the ultimate mistake was that, I, I don't know if you have to ask every member, because every member might have the same opinion, but I felt, I know what I wanted, okay? Yeah. I couldn't get it <laughs> with SSD, okay? So right. I decided that it was better not to have SSD and break up because I couldn't get what I wanted. So is that right? Or am I right? Or is that a good decision? I don't know. I know that, you know, I mean, what, we've been together maybe like three or four years at that point. I don't know, a lot of bands don't last too much longer than that. I mean, I don't know. We put, we put four records out, right? Four records out. Oh, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. But... You know, we definitely, I don't think we're playing our best at the end. You know, I, there's a lot of things, you know. I take all responsibility for everything. I don't well, put it well, in spring, then, I don't put it in anyone. Like I yeah. said, spring, I think Spring was thrust into the situation, and he did the best he could. And if you, if you look at it from that standpoint, he did a hell of a job. You know, if you just say he did the best he could. But right, right. that time, I was thinking he could do better. <laughs> you know? what, what, did, what was your state of mind and, and kind of your momentum once you guys did disband? So my state of mind, and I know I remember the state of mind. So this is not like 85 where you say, yeah, I said, fuck it. I'm sick of this music bullshit. I want to buy a jet ski. <laughs> oh, it's really? like I all my Marshall shit. And I, and I never had a jet ski before. I never rode a jet ski. <laughs> I rented one or something. I said, fuck it. I'm going to ride a jet ski because I'm sick of being indoors i want to get outside you know uh -huh. i really want to get outside so the next two or three years or five years every weekend we went to a lake and, huh. and we brought the old school kind the kawasaki 550 stand up this is like the crude ones you know <laughs> uh, took, took a lot of you know master you know yeah, a little bit it's not as just sit, you don't just sit down on I me mean, you gotta you gotta have some skill a little bit of skill yeah um Anyway, yeah. so we did that for, you know, and then, the, you know, then the jet skis kind of started getting banned and stuff, and we were tired at that point. And to be honest, all that period, I said to myself, well, I'm having a good time, but I'm not really doing anything, you know? Like, mm -hmm. uh, felt like I was cheating myself. So, uh, but I was having a good time, you know, and working and going to school. I think I get, uh, finishing my degree, probably starting to work. Yeah, no, like, going to school from 85 on for my engineering degree. Oh, right. so, you know, school took a, you know, school's a big thing, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's so much time. I mean, especially energy. engineering college. So, I mean, I didn't have a lot of uh, free time to be in a band maybe or something. I don't know. But I tell you, I always told Jamie, the bass player, man, if you can just find us a singer, <laughs> uh -huh. 
we can start another band. Not SSD touring, another, right. we can start another band. And you know, that was his task. And I remember checking in with him every once in a while. And he didn't, he didn't come up with anything. <laughs> oh, so, man. you know, it's my fault for leaving it up to someone else necessarily, if I still had those intentions, okay? Uh -huh. So anyways, now fast forward a little bit. You know, so now we're up to like 90, 93. I'm still waiting for him to come up with a singer or whatever. Oh, At the same Jesus. time, he moves to California, I believe, around then. So, you know, my options with him are, lim are gone, actually. Sure. Uh, yeah. Not limited. They're gone. He's gone to California. So I, uh, I say, uh, I say, I'm going to start another band. My father dies, and I'm going to start another band. Fuck it. I don't care. What do I got to lose? Uh -huh. I, was I was kind of a little frustrated at my job, and I started another band. Anyways, that's a long story short, but that's kind of my musical evolution, my thought process, and and everything. You know, I don't really like to talk about it that much. I shouldn't even talk about it now. You know, I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want people to think it's all, certainly it's not about me, but I tried to, like, steer the ship as best I could and, you know, did our best. Yeah. Well, but I'll tell you, here's the, here's the thing, without going into any details. Sure. If you listen to Gage, uh -huh. and you listen to SSD, you'll understand what I was going for. Okay, what I, what I, why SSD broke up. Sure. That's a good point, huh? People don't understand that. Gage was about songs and about singing. Those are two things I thought we missed a little bit in, in SSD. So that's my musical you got, you got anything else you want to ask him about the other yeah, stuff that I'm we really talked about? Been here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all right. It, it's, uh, 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 a Pepsi. <laughs> I know, all I right? wanted was a Pepsi. Right, right. The, uh, yeah, I mean, so many people have asked out to do pop. I thought you were a school thing, actually. I'm, out, I'm upstairs keeping the dog out of this. I thought she was doing some school work thing. <laughs> well, it's education. It's education. <laughs> Educational. And what she's saying about me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, you got, I, you, got, you got some great scoop there. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> I don't think he's ever talked publicly about this that. Is going to so. be on a podcast? There's a podcast now. You know? I erase that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. something on tape my voice. Well, there you go. You got it on there now. It's <laughs> too funny. Yeah. Up to this point. He says he's declined every podcast up to this point. Oh my God. Well, tell him too that I can send you guys a recording and anything that he's not happy oh, with. Oh, no, uh, he doesn't care. He's only okay. <laughs> yeah, because I want to respect you guys. His, you yeah, know. no, that's that's fine. Cool. Wow, that was, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I got some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, but not to take away from this is an interview with you, so. You're, you also are given we sort of, a lot of great insight. Sometimes come as a package deal, the two of us. <laughs> well, you know, as, as, it, as it is and should be as yeah. a, uh, you know, a long-term committed couple, of course. Yeah, so I guess tell us a little bit about, about the book you, you've got coming out. So part of the reason that I, I decided to write the book was because I saw that women were kind of being canceled out, kind of being erased from the narrative. And, it, and um it bothered me, you know, I would hear people, I, I would, you know, I joined a lot of like hardcore Facebook groups, you know, and uh -huh. I would tell my story and, you know, some dude born in 1985 would say, well, no, you're wrong, you know, oh, <laughs> and I'd, be like, I'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, like I, I can remember one guy t saying, you know, you couldn't have possibly been at that show because there were no women at shows, you oh, know, and, and, um, <laughs> 
and, and it really bothered me, you know, it bothered me as an educator, as a documentarian, you know, mm -hmm, as, mm -hmm. as a woman, you know, so I said, ah, screw this, you know, I, and I like to tell stories, you know, I come from a long line of storytellers and uh, it seemed like when I did tell a story on, on Facebook or Instagram, people like to hear the story. So then I decided, you know, that I was, uh, I was going to do it. So, um, I did, and hopefully um, it'll come out in September. I don't know if the corona is gonna affect that timeline, but yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about it. It's something I've always wanted to do. And, and is uh, it gonna be mostly stories? Is it? Is there a, a narrative? Yeah, theme? I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's a memoir. So it starts uh -huh. out with me, first grade Catholic school, you know, discovering music kind of, growing up and then, you know, discovering all these different bands and, you know, sort of ends with my love story of meeting Al. So it ends in 1982 when I moved to Boston. So, uh -huh. um, so you, that's great. Are you setting it up so that you can have a part two? Um, well, you know, I, I worked with Al and Jamie and Phil and Flash on an SSD book. And oh. so that's sort of the, you know, that's sort of the part two and that, um, you know, it's like a photo essay book. And so that, yeah, I would say that that could accurately be called part two, <laughs> you, know? you know, because again, I, I, I was out of hardcore in, in, by 85, you know, I have a couple of mm -hmm. stories and shows that I, you know, I went to after that. Um, but, uh, you know, I was really kind of out of the scene from then and then became a teacher and that, that is going to be my, my book after that is, is going to be about teaching. You know, I've already, I've already actually written that one. And so it just needs a lot of polishing up and editing and stuff. So that'll be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You had mentioned that and I'd seen the, uh, that you talked about it in another interview and that, you know, that book sounds amazing too. I mean, using punk rock to. Uh... Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really what's, you know, start. I don't know if you know, if you know Reverend Hank, uh, who, you know, used to roadie for Slapshot, he lives up yeah. here. Uh, I don't know him personally, but yeah. I yeah, know but you know who he is, is right? Yeah. One time he asked me a question about, some, you know, how did punk rock influence my teaching? And that really, you know, I, I tremendous debt to that guy for that because I wrote, uh, you know, I answered his questions and then I turned it into an article for Education Week, which is like, you know, the a, you know, big education magazine mm -hmm. you know, called called How Punk Rock Made Me a Better Teacher. And then I ended up doing an ed talk on it. And, you know, it sort of had a life of its own. And and then I, I you know, I wrote a book and the book was, you know, about, you know, growing up and, and discovering punk rock. That was the first half of it. And then the second half of it was the education piece. And I shopped it around to agents and I got, you know, a super high powered New York agent right away. Uh -huh. You know, he's like, oh, this sounds great. You know, he had done one of the Slits books and, mm -hmm. you know, he was like, I'm going to put this out to auction. And, you know, like, oh my God, I was like, this is great. I'll quit my job, you know, <laughs> it's right, like amazing. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and what happened was people either liked the punk rock story or they liked the teacher story they didn't like them together. And really? so that's when I, you know, so then that's when I decided I'm, I'm going to separate the two. And, and that's what I did. And, and um, you know, the, the punk rock one, obviously, is a little easier to, to, to get out, get done and get out there. And so yeah. um, that's what I did first. And now, uh, you know, now it's quarantine, you know, great time to work on finishing the other one, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, one of the hidden gifts, if there could be such thing amongst these yeah, times. Yeah. You know, it's, we, we have no excuse not to, to go deep with our creative pursuits right now. I, I'm with you 100% on that, yep. Yeah. But, uh, wow, I can't wait to, uh, you know, to see both, but just, just, you know, to see the first one come out, that's going to be great. Oh, God, you and me both. Like, I am just, you know, it was a long process, you know. I, I got involved with some of the wrong people in the beginning, and, and uh, you know, now I'm, I'm just dying to have it come out, and I just want to have parties, you know. I just want to have book release parties, you yeah, know. Yeah, I was going to say, are you? Know, you... Before I'm, I, I break a hip or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just want to go have some fun. And yeah. so I'm really hoping that, you know, that the release date is still on time and, and that I can, I can do that. You know, I'm dying to, yeah, dying you to do a book tour. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, I really want to, you know, at least something on the East coast, Philly, New York, Boston, DC. Like I really, I don't know about West coast, but definitely, you know, here I want to just have a, you know, some, some big parties and see, I, I love punk rock reunions. I do, I mm -hmm. was doing one in Philly every couple of years, you know, we, oh, so fun to see everybody after all these years and, you know, see what everybody's doing. Everybody's, you know, everybody's still super interesting and fun. And mm -hmm. you know, so that's, you know, that's really great. And that's one of the reasons why I'll still go like the circle jerks are playing here in um, October. I, I hope that show still happens. Oh, yeah. um, because when you go to a show like that, like the last, I went to see Flag, I went to see D The Damned and TSOL a couple of years ago. And, you know, everybody's there. It's like, it's like a high school reunion. It is. Know? It is. Uh, but better because it's the people you want to see. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's so fun. And so that's really, you know, that's, that's really what I'm looking forward to about this. And just, you know, to have the book done after all these, all these years. Yeah, the, the title of the book is... I'm Not Holding Your Coat. <laughs> and, so, and, and of course, that came from, you know, I, I would see people say like, oh, we used to let our girlfriends hold our coats, you know? And I was mm -hmm. like, we weren't holding anyone's coats, not the <laughs> one that I knew, you know? We were making stuff happen, you know? I, yeah. I you know, I regretted I had no musical talent, you know, um, uh, or, or I would have been on stage, you know, but I, I, you know, I can't carry a tune and I couldn't play an instrument. So, but I wanted to be a contributor. And yeah. so that, you know, I worked as a promoter, as a writer, a manager, and, you know, tried to make my own kind of contribution. And there were a lot of women that made up that infrastructure of the scene that, you know, it couldn't have, it couldn't have happened. I know even, you know, right here in Boston, Katie, the cleaning lady, you know, she was, instrumental you know and allison in philly and you know there's stories like that all over the country so oh, i figured you know, i was going to tell my you know my little my little piece you know i'm not you know grandiose enough to think that it was you know anything but what it was you know but it was a lot of fun it was really really a lot of fun and it was uh exciting and you know i tell my students now like i have zero regrets about fun that I had. You guys need to get out. You need to, you mm -hmm. know, go over the bridge into Boston. You need to experience music. You know, I had some students just recently that um, they love Billie Eilish, you know, and um, they were talking about her coming and I was like, oh, are you going to go? Are you going to go see her? And they're mm -hmm. like, miss, the cheapest t tickets are $250, you know, and I, I work in a low income urban school district. Like these kids oh, have yeah. no chance 
to be able to see their, you know, their musical icons because they're priced out of it. You know, it really made me mad. And I ended up, I put it on my Facebook, you know, hey, who can help these kids out? Uh -huh. And a lot of people stepped up and it actually turned out to be a graduate, Jamie Chambers, a graduate who uh, traded in like a bunch of his Bruins playoff tickets to get these kids tickets. And then, you know, I, we, we, you know, did like you see on TV, you know, like walked into the room and surprised the kids with the tickets, oh you know, God. oh my That's God, it was amazing. so, you know, they were so surprised. And, you know, of course now the th damn thing got postponed, but hopefully, you know, that show will still come so they get to see it. But I, I feel bad for kids today because they can't, you know, see the bands that they like and they can't, it's so not accessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that makes me really, you know, bummed out because you know the pr ticket price back when we were kids in relation to what you were making was really kind of reasonable. You could also camp out for tickets, like when I was in high yeah. school. If you camped <laughs> out for tickets at Electric Factory in Philly, you got front row. Like yeah. I was always in the I front. Remember row. That. Like yeah, because I camped out. You know, now you can't touch the front row unless you're a suit. You know, so. That's uh, that's to me is really is really bad, and I would love to see um, you know a resurgence of uh, and maybe you know actually it's I think it is going on you know with bands playing in in halls and and mm -hmm. smaller clubs and stuff because I do sometimes see that on Facebook and it makes me really happy you know oh I know it's it's like it has to have it has to be out there because I mean it is out there but it has to happen because you know you got to take music out of the businessman's grasp and give right, it to the people, right. you know, it, it's for the kids, you know. Yeah, I agree 100%. Any final thoughts, any, anything we didn't cover that, that uh, you'd like people to know or that sort of um, thing? You know, no, I just, I really hope that these, you know, difficult times do result, as you said, in a, in a, flux of uh, creativity and music and art and, and writing and everything. I'm, I'm just really, you know, I, I, I was waiting to see that happen when Trump was elected. I said, I right, know, I was like too. A lot of, you know, musical rebellion and this is, you know, that, that yeah. it's always, you know, musical. And I didn't really, you know, and that could be my age too, you know, <laughs> I'm, just not, I'm just not privy to where it's happening, you know, mm -hmm. but um you know, I'm hoping that people use the time to to come up with some really neat stuff. I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's here's hoping that this is a cocoon time when so much like, you know, talk about an explosive and like explosion of, uh, like you said, uh, expression and creativity comes out. Right. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thanks so much for talking. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. And thank Al too. That was a, I will. A I will. Yeah. Nice special guest uh, walk on there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All righty. All Keep right. Me Let me know if you need anything else.
This is from my conversation with Mike Gitter, who did Triple X Fanzine, one of the great Boston fanzines that documented the early hardcore years. And there is a great coffee table size book I would recommend to anybody called Triple X Fanzine, 1983 to 1988, Hardcore and Punk in the 80s. It's a wonderful book filled with interviews and record reviews and ads from back in the day. Mike was gracious enough to spend some time with me, and this is from our conversation. The minute you hear that sort of first wash of feedback for Boiling Point, it is as in your face as anything anything I had heard at that point. Maybe except for, with the exception of maybe Discharge, who made records that like scare you, which was fucking awesome. But no, you 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 put on you put on Kids Will Have Their Say, and you hear um that first rush of feedback that comes in with boiling point and it's just it's fast it's primal it it, it expresses you know for for me it just touched a it touched a raw nerve being a kid in the suburbs of boston like most kids never you know never feeling like you fit in but all of a sudden here was a rallying cry here was something that spoke to like barely in high school me that said, there's other people who, who are as enraged as you are, you know, who are as confused as you are, who, who want to lash out, but in a constructive way, as much as you are. And that, that record really, really reflected that. You know, and plus, you, you, had, you had the anthem, the kids will have their say. The kids will rise today, okay? It's simple. It's almost trite. But goddamn, like like it was it was words to live by. I got to say, Brian, with the score of the century, getting Al Burillo on the phone for 10, 15 minutes talking about SSD, because he never, never does interviews. And I, I'm almost wondering if he, if he realized that you were interviewing him for, for a podcast, because it kind of sounded when he got off the phone that he didn't even, that maybe he didn't even realize it. I don't know. But the fact that you got him to talk about SSD was great. And, you know, the one thing from the interview that really made an impression on me, and this is hammered home because the interview in Mike Gitter's book that was done probably around 1985 or so that he talks about is sort of an acknowledgement of that he never quite achieved on record what he wanted to in his mind. You know, that in his mind, he, he was always very forward thinking. You know, he, he mentions uh, either in the interview that I read or your interview, I get it all mixed up because I read all these interviews in one, you know, heard your interview and read those interviews in one day. 
is just even from when they got Francois in the band, that that was a message that, no, they're going for something more than just the one guitar, simple, primitive, fast, hardcore that they did on the first album. That there was always this intention to keep moving forward and to progress. And as they got better, you know, I think he said in the interview, the very first thing he said was, I just wanted to write some better songs. And, you know, I think he said in one of the interviews that if he had it his way, he would have gone from SSD control to SSD starting with Get It Away. So it's an acknowledgement of his own limitation. And rather than try to keep doing something that they were good at, that he would rather have just ended the band because he didn't want to just become a be a hardcore band playing the same songs over and over again, that even live, that they were kind of always live, they were always a record ahead of what they had actually released. So it's kind of like Husker Du. Like they were already, by the time you saw them play, they were already playing songs that had not even been released yet. So, so he seems just like a very uncompromising individual that, no, I would rather sell all my guitars and buy a jet ski then kind of, you know, be the show that you want me to be. And that I'm just not going to do that. I think that's why, you know, you'll probably never see an SSD reunion because it's never going to be how he envisions it being. And you have to, you know, as a fan, you're disappointed because I sure would love to see the guys in SSD get back together and, and play a show or two. But just as person to person, I mean, you have to really respect his attitude and, and where that all comes from. And, you know, him even acknowledging that Break It Up just was not that great of a record. And, you know, he's not there to defend it. He tried to do something with no apologies and, you know, because of maybe the limitations of the musicians or his own songwriting just didn't turn out to be what it sounded to me like what he hoped it hoped it would be. Well, yeah, and you know, as much as you or I might want to see a, or anyone might want to see a minor threat or an SSD reunion, you know, those things are just not going to happen because these people, you know, people like Ian, people like Al, they have so much vision, so much integrity that they only want to do what's happening in that moment what they believe in and what they see in their vision in that moment. They don't want to go backwards. They want to keep moving forward. And, you know, you've got to respect that. Whether they get it right or wrong, you got to respect it, right? Absolutely. got to respect that. So on that note, for our eternal playlist, and should this album make it to Spotify, I will add our picks to the list. At this moment, I can't, but um, I don't know. Should I add maybe a song from Get It Away? I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll do that. I don't know. Who knows? There's no rules here, right? There's no There's rules. There's no rules. So what's your, what's, your favorite, what's your favorite track from Kids? Well, I think we're going to agree once again. Uh, if I really had to put it down to one track, which is hard, uh, I would definitely say Boiling Point. Boiling Point just really... I don't know. It kind of sums up the whole record in that one song. It's so good. That's what I'd go with. Yeah. 
Um, absolutely, that that is definitely the song I would have picked. Uh, for me, it's it's a toss up between uh, "Not Normal" and "How Much Art." Uh, but Springer's performance, again, I've I've said it so many times, it's so great on "Not Normal" that I'm gonna pick that one. But I think for our playlist, so, since the kids is not available and "Get It Away" is. Uh, I think I'm gonna. I think I'll throw a song from "Get It Away" on there, just so we acknowledge SSD and their tangential history with Discord. Oh, definitely. So, what do we have? Well, we know we have um, a bonus episode coming up in a few days, but what do we have coming up as far as our Discord releases go? Well, we've got the. Great, great classic, one of my all-time favorites, Faith Void Split coming up. And so next week is the Faith side. The following week is the Void side. Well, I'm looking forward to that. That split LP, it's it's one of the, probably the most famous split LPs, um, you know, ever. So, and I love it. I love both sides of that record. And I am really looking forward to discussing the faith with you. Oh, me too. It's going to be so good. We've got a lot of guests on it too. Uh, won't say who right now, but just know we're going to have about about four interviews or so. Great. And I really can't say enough about both of those bands. So hang on to your hats. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one-two punch. All right, Brian. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Time to put this record back in its sleeve. See you next week. Nothing ever Restless movement in an empty room. Gathering sound is in the dark and blue.